Welcome to Charlotte Readers Podcast, where books and writing topics are center stage and where authors give voice to the written words. In Act One, we check in with a host. Uh, we provide some uh, community writing updates and we provide plenty of reading recommendations. And we feature New York Times bestselling novelist Therese Ann Fowler in her novel, It All Comes Down to This. In Act 2, we have Charlotte Litt's Two Minutes of Tips, and we address two writing questions. We feature author Joel Shulkin uh, and hear him break down his community blog post on what it means to write what you know. And also author Lee Zacharias, where we hear and dive into her blog post titled Mountain Climbing and Alligator Wrestling, which is really also about perseverance, which is what authors do, apparently. In Act 3, we feature Bobby Nash, an award-winning author who writes novels, comic books, short stories, screenplays, and more. And we focus on the one-hour read, uh, and in particular his uh, book, The Lost Adventures of Captain Hawkland, Smuggler's Run. And uh, we have an author feature on uh, Ruth Little and her memoir, Book of Ruth, where she narrates 50 years of adventures. Uh, and then in Act 4... Uh, we feature uh, co-host Sarah Archer's blog post entitled Streamlining the Writing Process, where we dive into uh, that process and uh, offer some tips and suggestions. Then we have our takeaways and what's coming next. Uh, hey, I'm Landis Wade, and on behalf of my co-host Hannah LaRue and Sarah Archer, we thank you for listening. The Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Charlotte Readers Podcast Beyond 300 is about you, the listener. We want your feedback, opinions, recommendations, and questions. Email us or leave us a voice message and you might hear us mention you or play your message on the podcast. Just go to the homepage or contact page at charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the links to email us or leave a voice message. It's easy to do. Let's have some fun together. Uh, hey there, listeners, and uh, hey there, Sarah and Hannah. What's up, hosts? We're here. <laughs> Four days after our last. Okay. That's what's up? <laughs> <All right. laughs> we sound so enthusiastic. We've been recording like uh, many, many episodes in a row here because we're trying to get as many under the uh, under the wire as we can before Hannah uh, has her baby. And by the way, when this comes out on September twenty seventh, Hannah, that will yeah, it'll yeah, be there, she'll be here. Right? She um, that's crazy. Twenty yeah, second is my induction date, so she'll definitely be here at that point. Um, unless something is crazy, which I hope is not the case. I'm definitely ready. So That's, that's like, when you say induction, it sounds like my graduation date. You know, yeah. It's when they're going to induct me with this. I would of say the mother, level right? of excitement is the same or more of that. Any kind of recognition, anything at all. I'm like, come on down. <laughs> Very excited. Give, give you a... Give, give you oh god yeah the last that, couple so, uh, weeks are just like the worst yeah. too you're just thinking ow <laughs> every five seconds <laughs> yeah. so yeah but she'll be here when this comes out so we have we have been busy um listeners we've been working to get a number of episodes together for you here in september to keep hannah uh, in the loop and hannah's even going to pre-record something for us so we'll have her a little bit in october there and we're going to try to get you to call in i think i'll be able too, to do that so. and while we're we're talking about that i I experimented the other day and listeners know this too that if you go to our speak pipe link there on the website uh, you can actually use your iphone or or, or a good uh, mobile device to 
click on our speak pipe and uh, leave us a message. Tell us, uh, you know, whether you think we're doing a good job or a bad job or what you want to see us talk about or add to the mix or tell us about your, uh, you know, give us that 30-second elevator pitch for your book that you've honed and uh, you know, we'll play that for you. So lots of ways to get it. Lots of ways to get on Charlotte's podcast now, isn't there, folks? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there are. Yeah. <laughs> we want to hear about your books. Yeah. Tell us about them. <laughs> exactly. We're getting a lot of, we're, and thank you folks for uh, engaging on social media too. I know, uh, Sarah, you probably pulled some of our discussion today. People are really responding when we ask for yeah. book recommendations. Yeah, we've got some great recommendations for today. So we'll be excited to share those too. Yeah, we even got the few spouses coming in here today. <laughs> <laughs> Your guys' spouses were good sports. <laughs> Mine, not so much. <laughs> Giving him a negative twist, shout out today. Twist his arm. <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. So, so I guess uh, anything that we talk about that's upcoming will have already happened by the time this comes out. So mm-hmm. we can probably move on to, <laughs> to community uh, announcements. Uh, and we have a few. Um, I want to drop in. Uh, uh, a few announcements here from uh, some of our uh, collaborators uh, locally here. We have the uh, Charlotte Writers Club has got a little announcement here about uh, what's coming uh, October the 2nd, uh, which sort of ties into who's also going to be on this show today with us, uh, Therese Fowler. So uh, let's listen in. This is Dave Collins, president of the Charlotte Writers Club, coming to you with an invitation. On Sunday, October 2nd, the Charlotte Writers Club will host an evening with Therese Fowler, a New York Times and USA Today best-selling novelist. The event will be held at the Mint Museum on Randolph Road from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Best known for Z, a novel of Zelda Fitzgerald, which was made into a miniseries for television, Fowler has no fewer than three bestsellers to her credit. She comes to Charlotte in October with a new novel. It all comes down to this the story of three strong-minded women set to inherit the family's cottage on Mount Desert Island in Maine until an enigmatic southerner comes on the scene and complications arise. Please join us as we celebrate Therese Fowler and the 100th anniversary of the Charlotte Writers Club. Tickets will be available at the door or in advance through the Charlotte Writers Club website, charlottewritersclub.org. Yeah, so listeners, check that out because uh, Sarah, you you interviewed Therese and you, we're going to have her on the show here in just a little bit. Uh, so uh, I'm assuming you give her high praise as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I loved her book and I love talking with her. So I'm super looking forward to um, hearing her speak at the event. And I'm going to be there too. It's um, it's really cool to be part of an organization that's 100 years old. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah. feels like there's not much of that. So um, yeah, super excited to celebrate with them. Yeah, and they, they tell me they're going to get an uh, up. Upgrade, upfit on their website coming up. So, you know, lots of changes happening. Took them a hundred years, but that's okay. But of course, they didn't have the internet. Didn't have the internet back then, so uh, did what they could. Uh, And we uh, we also have um, with Charlotte Lit. uh, They've got some classes coming up in the fall here, uh, particularly in October. We're doing this every at the end of every month. We'll give you a lead in as what's coming next month on uh, on their lineup. So let's listen in. I'm Paul Rielli, co-founder of Charlotte Lit. Thanks for inviting me on to talk about our calendar for October 2022. First, a highlight from our writing classes. We're excited to have Sarah Archer, novelist, screenwriter, and Charlotte Readers podcast host for A Glimpse into Hollywood Screenwriting on October 13th. For podcast listeners everywhere, we have a fantastic four-week asynchronous writing class. 
which means you can take it on your own time from anywhere called The Art of Detail with Megan Rich. That starts October 23rd. Next, we have something big, a series of events we're calling Artists Reckoning with Home. In October, we'll celebrate the art and legacy of acclaimed artist Romarie Bearden, who was born and spent his early years and many summers thereafter in Charlotte. Though Bearden's working years were spent primarily in New York, he understood himself as a Southerner, eventually claiming, I never left Charlotte except physically. Charlotte Lit co-founder Kathy Collins was inspired to create these events by a new book from UNC Press, Romery Bearden in the Homeland of His Imagination, an artist's reckoning with the South. The author, Glenda Gilmore, will be here for a talk on October 19 in partnership with the Mint Museum Uptown. We'll host two other Bearden events, on October 12th, a night in Brooklyn at Stu- Studio 229 on Brevard. And on October 16, writing with Bearden, an ekphrastic workshop at Mint Museum Uptown. All these events are free. More details at charlottelit.org slash Bearden. Finally, October is the final month to enter Charlotte Lit's Lit South Awards. We offer $7,000 in total prizes plus publication in our journal Litmosphere. Final judges are Melissa Fabos in nonfiction Avan Jordan in Poetry, and Bryn Chancellor in Fiction. You can find all of this and subscribe to our newsletter at charlottelit.org. We hope to see you there. Yeah, lots of great contests there and lots of great activities coming up. So if you're a writer out there, you know, check those out and uh, maybe find a class or something you want to submit to the, to that journal. Um, they do a nice event in the spring, I think, when they announced that. Uh, Sarah and I were there last year. A lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. It's a wonderful journal. I looked through it and read some of the material, and just so much talent there. So definitely a good thing to submit to. Yeah, and so while we're on a roll here with what's going on locally, and by the way, uh, this just sort of helps indicate that Charlotte is kind of a hub of activity when it comes to uh, readers and writers. But uh, let's hear from Dave Collins one more time about the, you know, what the Charlotte Writers Club has going on in October besides the big October 2nd event, because after all, it is the 100th uh, year. This is Dave Collins, president of the Charlotte Writers Club, with an invitation to Charlotte area writers, even to avid readers who want to know more about what happens as a book comes together. Members of the CWC meet on the third Tuesday of each month to hear a craft talk by an accomplished writer. Meetings are held at the Tivola Senior Center, 2225 Tivola Road, and begin at 6.30 p.m. Our speaker in October, mark the date on your calendar, October 18th, is A.J. Hartley, the New York Times best-selling author of no fewer than 24 novels in a wide variety of genres, mystery, fantasy, sci-fi, thriller, paranormal, children's and young adult literature. AJ's craft talk will focus on adaptation and the art of working with sources, human and written. How do you tell stories, he asks, which have in some way been told before? Why would you try? Join us as he leads us toward answers. For more information on the Charlotte Writers Club, visit our website, charlottewritersclub.org. All right. Well, I'm, unfortunately, I'm not going to be there October 18th because I'm going to be in Ireland uh, uh, playing golf on a trip that's been canceled like twice <laughs> You're making before. It. So uh, <laughs> if it's if it's between that and this, but uh, AJ Hartley, he's he's a a great writer locally. Uh, I'm reading his book now, uh, Burning Shakespeare, that uh, Mark West recommended a few episodes back, and it's really clever. Uh, it's about uh, these people that go back in time to try to uh, one one side's trying to 
uh, wipe Shakespeare from the earth because he's tired of everybody that bows down to him in the 21st century. And then there's some others that go back to try to uh, protect Shakespeare. So kind of interesting, fun book. So a little yeah. time travel, a little, little literature. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds fun. Uh, and speaking of books, uh, it's time to uh, jump into books we're reading or want to read. <laughs> and uh, uh, I don't know, it's just been a few days since we last recorded. Uh, uh, Sarah and I have some backups here planned for for ours, uh, but uh, Hannah, do you have uh, yeah, anything you want to share? Yeah, I'm going to share my favorite book of all time today, and just my favorite author of all okay. time, since this will be the last episode that I record for a little bit. I'll give you guys some homework for the fall <laughs> to read all of Wally <laughs> Lamb's books. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just kind of wanted to share my favorite book ever is called I Know This Much Is True by Wally Lamb. I love pretty much everything he writes. You guys might have read some of his stuff, but um, it is about a set of twins, one of which is meant ill and is schizophrenic and cuts off his hand in the very beginning and it's it starts with a bang uh really <laughs> and so um but it's about their relationship and kind of their childhood and their past and it kind of goes I feel like with a lot of the interviews that I or we've kind of been a part of recently just like generational trauma and um how you deal with that and some family issues and that sort of thing and so it's it's really good it was actually made into a limited series, I think maybe two years ago with Mark Ruffalo, and I think he won the Emmy for that, but um, it was really well, well done. It's just a great book, and he writes amazing stories, and he works actually in a women's correctional facility up in New York in his off time, so <laughs> to speak. So he writes from women's perspectives a lot, actually, and it's really, really powerful. It's I think it's rare to find a male writer who can kind of step inside the mind of a woman and he does that ex- extremely well I don't another one is she's come undone I love that book too right it's, it's so favorites. good it's like it's so uncomfortable yeah. sometimes <laughs> <laughs> like but I think a lot of his books are kind of like that but they make you really think a lot and um so you know I recommend going down that darkish path and coming out an enlightened human <laughs> so good luck <laughs> All right. Well, we're, as always, we're going to have uh, that and other recommendations that we're making today in our show notes, so you don't have to stand by with your pad and pencil. Um, we'll, we'll have that ready. But uh, Sarah, uh, you actually uh, had one, I think, before uh, before your husband uh, jumped in this morning with uh, his own recommendation. So you want to share that, and then we'll we'll jump into Gunners. Yeah, yeah. So um, I've been reading Bookish People by Susan Call. Um, I'm actually listening to it on Libro FM, which I just signed up for, which has been great. I, I'm definitely more of like a visual reader, so I've held out on audiobooks for a long time. Um, and I prefer to read, you know, hard copy when I can, but it's just such a great way to to get more reading in like when I'm cooking dinner or doing the dishes or anything like that. Um, so I've really actually been enjoying listening to this and um, it's set in a bookstore in Washington, D.C. And there is a secret room in the bookstore, Ooh. which is great. I mean, <laughs> who doesn't want like a, a bookstore with a secret room in it? Um, and it deals with some kind of um, heavier like real life current events but the tone of the book overall is pretty light and witty and it's just sort of like an ensemble story about the people who work there um, so if you're at all interested in like the behind the scenes of a bookstore and the publishing industry and that kind of world it's a lot of fun it's a good like summer read so I've been well, enjoying that that is interesting because um, you know we have this affiliation at the podcast with Libra FM and I said well hey you know we got to get uh, Sarah and Hannah signed up for this too so we can start recommending more and so the one i downloaded this month one of the two was the one you just mentioned book is people mm-hmm. and this morning on a, on a short walk i was listening to about 
20 minutes of it, and uh, it is kind of fascinating. What, what would you say the point of view of that book is? It's kind of an omniscient third-person. Yeah, kind of. yeah. Well, it's it's sort of an ensemble story. I mean, the yeah. woman who owns the bookstore is, if there is a main character, Sophie, I would say she's yeah. yeah I would say yeah. she's the main character, but it doesn't just live with her. It talks about like the other employees there, um, and there's a, a famous author who's kind of controversial who's coming to speak at the bookstore, and there's some drama yeah. brewing around that. So, yeah, it's it's an interesting story. Yeah, one of the literary bookish people bookseller that was working there was defending the author who most called boring at his book uh, signing but she said something like well they're they're writers they're not they're not performers yeah they're so, not trained monkeys <laughs> trained seals yeah that's what I'm uh okay well good so um yeah and this just under the wire we got uh you want to introduce your husband to us and we'll play yeah, his? Yeah, so my husband Gunnar was um, a good sport and gave us a book recommendation too for his favorite series of all time. So I think we've got that yeah. that we can play all for right. you. Let's tee it up. Hi, this is Gunnar Moulton, husband of co-host Sarah Archer, talking to you today about books I enjoy. The books I recommend are from Patrick O'Brien, they are the Aubrey Maturin novels, nearly 20 novels that take place during the Napoleonic Wars between Captain Aubrey and Stephen Maturin, his physician. I myself have just completed my medical training over the last decade. And when I had a brief time to read something outside of medicine for a few days, a few weeks, I knew one of these novels would reliably transport me, be well-written, entertaining, taking place in colonial America, Asia, the Mediterranean, and South America. I can't recommend them highly enough. Unfortunately, I am on now book 19 of 20, and will soon complete the series and may just have to restart from the beginning. So thank you very much for the invite, and enjoy all right, I love it. Uh, so I've been obsessed with these same kind of books, and and I'm going to make a recommendation. If, if you're going to have to get Gunner to listen now to this, so he'll mm-hmm. he'll hear what I have to say. But uh, I'm a fan of that uh, time period as well, and uh, I've read three series of books. Um, the uh, Horatio Hornblower series by C.S. Forster has eleven books in it, so there's mm-hmm. eleven books for him to read. Okay. Uh, there's the Ramage series by Dudley Pope that has 18 books. Hmm. And then there's the Richard Blitho series by Alexander Kent that oh has 30 books. And wow. all these are <laughs> like midshipmen that rise to the ranks of, uh, you know, admiral. But through it all, they're they're dealing with all of the various uh, twists and turns of being in the military. And I will say this, you know, the one he's read, Patrick O'Brien, Master and Commander, they move a little slower. They 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 sort of describe every halyard and every block and tackle and every floor and fauna. If he wants a little more action, jump into something like Ramage and Hornblower and uh, more so Blitho's probably closer to Master and Commander type Patrick O'Brien. But you know that's probably what that's about fifty books I've got for him to read. Yeah, I'm busy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's the kind of thing you know you finish one, you want to go to the other. There's some great. Uh, court-martial scenes in the Ramage books where you learn about how that process actually worked. And, uh, you know, after the evidence is taken and they come back in, uh, you know, the sword that they have to give up before the trial starts, 
uh, is on the table in front of the three judges who are basically captains from ships in the area. And if the hilt is turned toward the accused, they can pick it up and walk freely. If the point is torn toward them, they've been convicted and they're going to hang. So. Wow. I should try that in <laughs> the courtroom in Charlotte here sometime. <laughs> yeah. See how that goes. I don't, I don't know how that would work. But anyway, yeah, that's good stuff. And so that, that, that sort of points up, I think, the value of reading a series, too, that people kind of get hooked. They they get attached to the characters, mm-hmm. as as Gunner did and I did in these books. And if you can find some good characters um, you know, like that that you'll stay with. So, okay, well, that's uh, that's one of the spousal elements of the show today. And since I've been uh, – not finishing books, but reading three or four at a time. I've got uh, a contribution uh, by my wife, Janet, uh, who at one time was a lawyer, then a fifth grade school teacher, and uh, now is helping take care of our grandchild. So uh, let's listen to what Janet has to say in her recommendations. Hi, this is Janet Wade. Landis's wife, stepping in to make a few book recommendations on this podcast. The first book I wanted to recommend is The Sky Club by Terry Roberts. It's a novel set in the years between 1929 and 1931 in Asheville, North Carolina. It explores the impact of the Great Depression on a once blossoming city and the rural countryside around it. It's a story of growth, self-awareness, greed, friendship, independence, and love. I really loved the characters. They're just fantastic. And you'll want to be friends with everyone. Well, almost everyone. And you can't help but pull for Joe and Levi as they try to build a life, both personal and professional, in the midst of the adversity of the Depression. And there's a little guilty pleasure when some of the less desirable characters experience the consequences for their actions, their actions of just trying to keep the money moving. You'll feel as though you're living in Asheville in this time period, and you'll get a real sense for what the Depression was like for normal people. The second book I wanted to recommend is a book named Codename Serendipity by Amber Smith. It's a middle grades book, and as a former fifth grade teacher, I am always on the lookout for wonderful books for that age group, and I was delighted to find this one. This book is about a young girl named Sadie who is dealing with a lot of changes at the start of a new school year. Her best friend has moved, her brother is a jerk, which was not surprising, and her beloved grandfather is experiencing some memory issues. Nothing seems to be going right for Sadie until a stray dog shows up and sets in motion a plan to make the dog a part of the family. Sadie finds the strength to face her challenges, builds new friendships, and demonstrates responsibility and growth and understanding of herself and others. This book has a lot of imagination, a little magic, and unconditional love making this a positive and affirming story for any age, but especially for those in the middle grades who are struggling to figure out exactly who they are and where they fit in. Either one or both make fantastic reads. So enjoy. All right. uh, Two observations there. Uh, Terry Roberts and Amber Smith have both been on the podcast. Uh, Listeners, you can find them if you go to our 
website on the guest page and scroll down or you can just scroll through your app. But uh, secondly, uh, Sarah, I don't know, um, our spouses are about to upend us here, right? With their, I know. With their good work. You know? <laughs> I'm going to do Charlotte Reader's <laughs> podcast number two. Janet's voice, exactly. I just love it. Exactly. No, she's probably the best teacher of all time. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. I love it. <laughs> we're, always run, we're always running into people. We ran into somebody the other day and they were like, do I know you? Do I know you? And Oh, you taught my oh. child 20, 15 years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They still talk about Miss Williams. No oh. surprise there. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. She she told her class that she ran a benevolent <gasps> dictatorship. There's no democracy, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that That's, there were going to be rules, you know. That sounds like a good plan <laughs> and for And they did have to follow, they did have to follow the rules, Janet. you know. Tell them how it is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Uh all right, well, we got a couple of other contributors here, uh, and then also some from our listeners. So uh, let's hear what uh, Alyssa Pressler at That's Novel Books has to share this week. Hi, everyone. My name is Alyssa with That's Novel Books. We're a used bookstore here in Charlotte at uh, Camp North End, and I wanted to give some book recommendations that I've enjoyed recently. The first is When No One Is Watching. This was a really great psychological and kind of fantastical thriller by Alyssa Cole. A lot of folks... Um, mentioned that it was kind of similar in feeling to the movie Get Out that was very popular a few years ago, and I agree with that. Highly recommend it. It's got um, kind of a historical element. It's uh, political, and it is extremely well done. The second book that I'm going to recommend is Nothing Burns as Bright as You by Ashley Woodfolk. This was um, a young adult LGBTQ romance, um, kind of written in free verse. It's really beautiful. The writing is phenomenal, and I just couldn't put it down. All right, another good book recommendation. And uh, then finally here from our collaborators, we've got Mark West with Storied Charlotte Blog. Hello, this is Mark West with the Storied Charlotte Blog. My recommendation today is a new biography about the famous artist, Romare Bearden. The biography is titled Romare Bearden in the Homeland of His Imagination, an Artist Reckoning with the South. It's written by a woman named Glenda Elizabeth Gilmore, who is a retired professor at Yale, but she has Charlotte connections. The book was published by the University of North Carolina Press, and it came out just this summer. What I really like about this biography as how the author shows how Bearden's experiences growing up in Charlotte and his family history in Charlotte and the South in general is reflected in the art that he created when he was living in New York and in some cases Europe. She shows that even though Bearden left the South, it still had an impact on his imagination, on his thoughts about race relations, on his thoughts about the changes that the South and the rest of the country were going through during the time period of his life. He was born in 1911, and he died in 1988. And his art really captures a lot of the changes that were going on in America during that time frame. If you're interested in learning more about Bearden, I suggest that you take a look at the events that the group Charlotte Lit is organizing in October, celebrating Bearden and this new book. The event is a celebration, really, under the title Artist Reckoning with Home. 
So if you're interested in these events, there's a series of events in October, go to the Charlotte website and you'll find more information about it. So that's my recommendation. Uh, and I hope you enjoy learning more about Bearden and understanding why he is such an important artist with Charlotte Connections. Thank you. Yeah, how about that? We got a little more synergy there from uh, what uh, they were talking about earlier at Charlotte. And, uh, and these are all independents. Kind of interesting how people think about some of the th same things when they're making the recommendations. Um, mm -hmm. And Sarah, you've got, uh, I feel like we're just bombarding our listeners with a lot of great <laughs> options. But uh, hey, it's good to have options, right? So let's yeah. listen to what our listeners have been saying about uh, books they like. Yeah, we got a lot of um, great recommendations from listeners through social media. So um, Lynn Wilkerson recommends The Grand Design by Joy Calloway, which I believe that's one that has been recommended on mm -hmm. a past episode as well. Um, so we'll have to check that out. And Kate Carey um, recommends The Ministry for the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Donna Everhart recommends The Overstory by Richard Powers. Uh, Michael Cody sent us a whole library of recommendations. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> He's got uh, Graceland at Last by Margaret Renkel, Hell of a Book by Jason Mott, Genesis Road by Susan Odell Underwood, The Sympathizer by Viet Thanh Nguyen, um, and In the Backhoe's Shadow by Thomas Allen Holmes. And Rebecca Hodge recommends In the Lonely Backwater by Valerie Neiman. And Sarah Johnson recommends Telephone by Percival Everett. So yeah. lots of good stuff Big to list. check out there. Yeah, and Jason, Jason Mott's been on the podcast. And I think that book, Hell of a Book, uh, won the National Book Award. Yeah, it did. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, and, uh, and several of the others. And of course, Michael's been on the podcast, too. And um, appreciate y'all making those recommendations. And uh, we're going to do one thing and come back to the to an author feature in just one second we have an affiliation with libro.fm because you can get audiobooks from them and when you do you support independent bookstores if you'd like to sign up with them for your audiobooks use the promo code charlotte reader and claim your free audiobook all right got our first author feature sarah you're going to lead us in this one yeah, um, so I had a great time talking to Therese Ann Fowler. Um, she's a wonderful North Carolina author. She's written New York Times bestselling novels, Z, a no novel of Zelda Fitzgerald, A Well-Behaved Woman, a novel of the Vanderbilts, and A Good Neighborhood. Um, she was raised in the Midwest and migrated to North Carolina in 1995, and she holds a BA in Sociology and Cultural Anthropology and an MFA in Creative Writing from NC State. So adding to our tally of, you know, which authors have gone to which different NC schools, we always love that. Um, and her latest book, It All Comes Down to This, is about the strong-minded Geller sisters, the men they can't live with or without, the main summer house that holds the key to their happiness, and the secrets that will change everything. Um, you've got a great trio of sisters here, Bette, Claire, and, and Sophie. Um, they're strong-minded women whose pragmatic widowed mother, Marty, will be dying soon and taking her secrets with her. She's ensured that her modest estate is easy for her family to deal with once she's gone, including a provision that the family's summer cottage on Mount Desert Island, Maine, must be sold. The proceeds split equally between the three girls. Um, a little bit about the three sisters. So Beck, the eldest, is a freelance journalist whose marriage looks more like a sibling bond than a passionate partnership. Um, in fact, her husband Paul is hiding a troubling truth about his love life. And for Beck, the main cottage has been essential to her secret wish, wish to write a novel and to remake the terms of her relationship. 
Um, the other, the middle daughter is Claire, a pediatric cardiologist. And despite her accomplishments, she's always kind of felt like the Geller misfit. She's recently divorced, divorced. Um, her secret unrequited love for the wrong man is slowly destroying her. And she's finding that her expertise on matters of the heart, unfortunately, does not extend to her own. And then there's the youngest sister, Sophie, who appears to live an Instagram-ready life filled with glamorous work and travel, celebrities, fashion, art, and sex. In reality, her existence is a cash-strapped house of cars that may crash at any moment. And then there's um, this other character named C.J. Reynolds, who is an enigmatic Southerner ex-con with his own hidden past, who complicates the situation. And all is not what it seems, and everything is about to change. Um, it's a great kind of like mishmash of different secrets, and you know, one of those novels where you you kind of find ticking time bombs within it as you read, and you can't wait to see how and when they're going to go off and what the fallout is going to be. Um, Wiley Cash, who is, of course, the New York Times bestselling author of When Ghosts Come Home, um, says that Fowler writes like a contemporary Edith Wharton, peeling back layers of class and custom to reveal the mysteries of love, longing, and fate. And it's a great kind of character novel, um, really well-crafted um, writing and prose and just a joy to read. Yeah, and uh, y'all had some fun together. You were praising her book, and she asked if you were single and you had a date, right? <laughs> I like that we're part. <laughs> Author spouses, yeah. yeah spouse, Gunner yeah. won't mind. Exactly. All right. Well, let's uh, let's listen in to the interview. Um, so, listeners, I'm so excited to be talking today with the wonderful Therese Ann Fowler about her new novel. It all comes down to this. Therese, welcome to the program. Hi, Sarah. I'm so glad that we can make this work. Yes. Thank you for working through. We, we've had a few audio and internet issues this morning, so <laughs> thank you for your patience with that. I appreciate it. <laughs> sure. Um. So as I was reading this book, I, one thing that really struck me is the style of your prose. It's just so lovely. It, it flows so easily. I really can't remember the last time I read a book that was so kind of readable and breezy. Um, how did you find or cultivate your voice as a writer? Do you feel like that's something that just comes to you naturally? Oh, I, I'm so flattered to, to hear that. Thank you for, for saying so. <laughs> um, you know, this is my seventh published book, and I probably mm -hmm. have maybe three others, you know, that never saw the light of day. Um, and so it is, I think, just partly a natural thing. You know, a writer develops a voice over time. And with practice, that voice becomes clearer, stronger, all of that. Uh, I don't think it's a deliberate thing. I mean, the tone for this book was deliberate, you know, the, mm -hmm. the breeziness as you describe it. But I think you know, the, the style of my writing has, from the start, been characterized as having a kind of a, a natural energy to it. And I, right. I probably have just tried to develop that over time so that it comes down ultimately to, you know, once you have the story in place on the page, the sort of fine tuning at the sentence level and at the paragraph mm -hmm. level so that there's not a lot of repetition. Uh, a lot of early writers tend to state a thing and then restate it and then state it sometimes again because they keep thinking of what seem like fresher or stronger ways to mm -hmm. present whatever it is in that sentence and then forget to go back and take out, you know, the, the two, uh, you know, parts of that, that that are not as strong and leave just the strongest one. So, so it is partly right. experience too that, that leads to that tidier prose. But I'm, I'm so pleased that, that, that you felt that way reading it. That's my goal. 
Oh, I did. I loved it. <laughs> I just breezed right through, even though it's um, it's a you know it's not a short book, and there's a lot of kind of dense material in there. But it it was just a joy to read the whole way through. Oh gosh, are you single? I'm not, but I say you know <laughs> you keep flattering me. We could get together. <laughs> Yeah. As a writer, that's all you need, right? Just flatter my writing and we're, we're partners right. for life. It's not a, no problem that I'm completely heterosexual. We could have a platonic marriage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a writer marriage. Mm-hmm. No, I, I totally understand that feeling. Um, right. So another thing that was interesting to me with this is it's an ensemble story. Um, you know, you have a fair number of different characters between the Geller family. Um, there is C.J. Reynolds and his kind of cohort in Maine. And I always think writing a story like that where you have multiple storylines you're following is interesting. Did you kind of pick favorites at all with this? Were there certain characters where you're like, oh, I can't wait to get back and write his or her story? Some days it varied, actually, uh, as the the draft process went on. I think for me, in terms of like what was the most fun, uh, who was the most fun to get on the page, it was probably Sophie. She's the youngest of the mm-hmm. three sisters in the story. And her existence is really lively. And so for me, that was just the, the most fun. She's She's built this kind of house of cards for herself. And so story-wise, that's entertaining, I think, for me to work on. Mm-hmm. But then also, because her life is what we would call what? Um, she's not exactly in high society, but she she rubs elbows with celebrities. She's always traveling. You know, she's on the go a lot. And she's, she's a single woman in the city. All of that sort of give, gave her storyline um, a lot more entertainment for me. And when I talk mm-hmm. to readers about it and I ask, you know, so which one, which sister was your favorite? It's really interesting to me to see who chooses Sophie and who absolutely doesn't choose Sophie. <laughs> you know? Yeah. It's like a, it's like a that, personality that is... test of the reader. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> Sophie person. Um, yeah, her, yeah. Her world, I guess, is very different from the world of the other characters, which is a nice way to have that sort of like celebrity culture, you know, flashy world without having a book that's completely about that. Um, but it still feels yeah, grounded and, in, in the rest of the story. And, and, you know, she's jaded about that world, mm-hmm. which um, is a yeah. trait that Sophie and I share. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But um, you make it work with like the combination for feeling jaded about it, but still finding some joy in it as well. Um, so yeah, I think good. that was all very entertaining to read. Um, Excellent. And the the world of the story, like we kind of were just talking about, actually is, is pretty broad. I mean, in addition to a lot of characters, you have a lot of settings. Um, geographically, you go from, you know, there's Mount Desert Island in Maine, New York City, Duluth, uh, Switzerland, France, even Dubai at one point. Um, That's all right. the settings feel very, very real to me on the page, too. So I was wondering as I was reading how many of these places you've actually been to in real life and, you know, what sorts of research do you do to make your settings feel so real? One of the reasons I think that this story came to have all of these different different pieces of geography was because I was writing it in the starting in the summer of 2020 when you know most of us were observing uh, conservative if not complete lockdown protocols because mm-hmm. of the pandemic and I was travel hungry so I was revisiting some of my favorite places in this story and it gave me a lot of pleasure to get to go there you know at least yeah. at my desk on a regular basis. 
Um, I have been to all of those places except for Dubai. I haven't been to okay. Dubai. And I, but I have a friend who, who grew up there and has talked at some length about um, spending time there. And then, of course, I just made use of the internet, which worked really well for me until today mm -hmm. um, <laughs> to, to do um, research on what it was like in Dubai, what it is like in Dubai. And it, it is such a small yeah. piece of, of the story that I didn't really have to go into depth um, too far with yeah, that. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, it did. It did make me feel like, oh, this place sounds fascinating, though. I want to visit it myself. <laughs> so interesting. Um, yeah. yeah. Books are definitely always such a great vicarious travel uh, mechanism, and especially during the pandemic. I mean, it's it's been a wonderful way to kind of get out of your own head, get out of your own house, um, just on the page. So Absolutely. I think this book is great for that. Um, Escapism. And, and, yes, yes, for sure. Uh, whether it's, you know, escaping to a different place or just a different state of mind. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think this book is really kind of the tenor of what a lot of people are looking for right now, something that has some meat to it, but that is also heartwarming and entertaining and, and does it's not going to drag you down and make you think about, you know, the sadness of life too much. <laughs> right. No, not like my, my previous novel that came out in 2020, um, A Good Neighborhood, yeah. that, that one's a tragedy. And, you know, thank, thank, thank all the readers who are still coming to that book. But yeah, this is definitely a very different kind of experience for mm -hmm. the reader and it was for me writing it too. I agree with you. Yeah. I think that, that and a little bit of entertainment with a little bit of um a little bit of meat on the bones is like the ideal mm -hmm. for for me as a reader anyway. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um and another thing that was really kind of delightful for me to read in this is the the plot. There are a lot of twists and turns. All the characters have secrets that they're hiding from each other. Um it's sort of juicy in that respect. And I, I was wondering how you approached plotting that out. Um like cuz you have to build this sort of complex web of different secrets and decide when you're going to re reveal various pieces of information both to various characters in the story and to the reader. So how did you approach that? It was a kind of a, a tricky exercise. I knew early on that this story would be one in which every point of view character had some kind of secret and the reader would be in on the secret, but none of the other characters would be. And so that, you know, the fun in plotting like this is that the the reader is, is going through the story waiting to see when the secrets will be revealed mm -hmm. to the other characters and then what the fallout of that is going to be. And in terms of sort of how do you do that? I, it's always hard to talk about that kind of thing, especially when I know other writers are listening in, hoping to get sort of the, the tips and tricks yeah. <laughs> about how these Tell things are done. Tell us your So much of it is just kind of an organic process um of just it's a it's a logic problem mm -hmm. really when you come comes down to how you lay out such a thing i don't i don't organize my stories using post-it notes or any special special kind of software or anything to track those things i think it's just a matter of being in it in my head you know all day every day when i'm putting it together and then Ultimately, you know, I test it out when it goes into my agent's hands, right. my editor's hands, and then my husband, who is a, an author himself and um, was a, a writing professor. And, you know, he's he's terrific at, at looking for plot, 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 
problems, mm-hmm. but it is, uh, it is mostly just, it's just analyzing and then assessing the effect. Yeah. It's make it sound like bricklaying, actually, <laughs> which a lot of writing is just brick, that bricklaying. That is true. <laughs> One brick at a time. And indeed. Yeah. And sometimes you have to take the bricks down and, you know, fix them in a different order. Oh, yeah, <laughs> but, that's very uh, true. Yeah, Um, yeah, it it was so effective the way that, like you were saying, you kind of, you know the secret, but not everyone else knows. And so you're just anticipating like, well, what's going to happen when this person finds out this thing? And so it has that fun, almost mystery element to it. It reminds me of uh, an event I was doing, a book tour. I was in Cincinnati um, and there was a, each of the bookstores that I went to on tour this year had someone to to do the the kind of interview process, Mm -hmm. right? And at this event, they had selected a, one of their young men booksellers who he kind of like volunteered himself. And he said, I would, I would do the interview with Therese, uh, but I have to read the book first. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's telling me this, of course, after the fact. He said, I just kept like turning the pages. Yeah. I just like, what's going to happen? Who is this person? Oh, my God, what are they doing? And I, I loved it because... He was like 25 years mm-hmm. old. And I thought, you know, the 25 year old male is not the demographic that I would have thought yeah. <laughs> would respond to this book. And yet he was just absolutely um, enthralled, he said. And so, yeah, and that's also you, you and um, young Jack. We're on the same page. <laughs> I mean, it, it really is an accomplishment yeah, yeah, to, <laughs> to grab your reader and keep them wanting to read these days because we all have so many things competing for our attention and our attention spans, I think, have gotten a lot shorter. So, <laughs> so it, you know, it's a challenge to drag those readers in and keep them wanting to find out what's next. Um, so I, I really... No, that. it really is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I, we, I did have a few more questions, but first I wanted to pause and kind of see if you could read us a bit from the book. Did you have a scene picked out that you'd like to share? Well, I was looking at a lot of things and there are things that I would love to share that I would it would take too long to mm-hmm. set up. So I think what I will read for you is just the opening chapter because it doesn't need any stuff. Yeah, no spoilers. That, that works. That, that's perfect, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no spoilers. Um, so... Uh, The first chapter is titled Certain Expectations, and um, it goes like this. How differently the Geller sisters' lives would have turned out had C.J. Reynolds not been released from prison that February. Or suppose he'd been released but had not decided to restart his life on Mount Desert Island, Maine, where Marty Geller's old waterfront house might or might not be coming up for sale. Suppose that instead of getting a flight from Columbia, South Carolina, to Bangor, C.J. had instead returned to his hometown of Aiken to try to make amends. But he did take that flight, and in doing so, he altered his future and theirs, the three Geller sisters, Manhattan-born and raised, not at all the sorts of women C.J. had been used to back before he was locked up with some thousand men whose coarse behavior made him feel like he was in the ninth grade. Misfit, scared, wishing yet again that he'd been born into a different family, a different life. You'd be amazed at the volume of prison conversation that had centered on women's breasts, on body parts generally, on sex in every possible form. Incarceration made some men really creative. CJ had chosen not to take part in those conversations. He'd chosen not to take part in most everything optional in the pen, a place he was not meant to be. And yet there he had been, and this made him wonder about meant to be and about fate in general. He'd also wondered whether Jesus, 
who he believed had been a real person who'd done at least some of what was credited to him, would approve of all the ways he, Jesus, was being put forth as the personal savior of a lot of hardened criminals who really only hoped the connection might help get them paroled. CJ had not re relied upon Jesus to aid in his defense. For that, he'd spent a good deal of money on an attorney whose relationship with Jesus, if any, was unknown to CJ, but whose relationship with law, evidence, and specific judges was certain and solid. This had not, however, been enough to keep him out of prison. It had perhaps made it so that he wasn't in prison longer, and this was worth far more to him than the money he'd spent. CJ was extremely fortunate to have had that money in the first place, especially as he hadn't earned most of it himself. He'd inherited a pile, no, a mound of money from his paternal grandmother, who had never judged him for wanting to take a different path. But he didn't have more millions coming to him the way some of his kind did, because he had not returned to Aiken to make amends and was determined not to do so, ever. He was also out of a job, and a wife, a daughter too, damn it all, though he hoped to rectify that, if not the rest. Would any of this matter to the Geller sisters? Beck, a journalist, pragmatic but also sensitive and stalwart. Claire, a doctor, caring but skeptical too, and sometimes quick to judge. Sophie, an assistant gallerist, forgiving yet cagey, self-protective. If any of these women discovered his past, and maybe they would not, they wouldn't be the pushovers one might wish to have as a jury. But how much would that matter to CJ, who wasn't looking for new entanglements? An inspiring, peaceful setting in which to live and paint was his central, central aim. The Geller sisters, too, had particular aims. They had certain expectations, desires, long-held beliefs. They had no idea that everything safe and familiar would be undone at the intersection of a man and a house and a secret. Not CJ's, but another's. And of course, each of them had their own secrets, too, hidden and protected by long and careful habit. Revelation is risky. Suppose it leads to a fall. Ah, but suppose it leads to flight. That is the opening to the book. I love that. Um, and it's interesting to hear it again, having <laughs> um, read through to the end now and, and some of the themes that you lay in there about like fate and secrets and how those things play out in different ways over the story. Um, it's, it's interesting to revisit the beginning of a book after the end. <laughs> you pick up on right. things you didn't necessarily see the yeah, first time. Yeah, you know, I like, to, I, do, I don't do this in every book, but I really like that kind of sort of set up introduction mm -hmm. um, instead of, you know, sometimes I, I think more, more often than not, we are just put straight into the action of a story. But in this book in which the voice of the story was, I thought, as important as the story, uh, I liked I liked doing that kind of setup. Yeah, and it's interesting that you start with CJ because he's obviously an important character, but the sisters, the Geller sisters, are really um, kind of the the bulk of the book. Um, so we hear some about Indeed. them through CJ before we then enter their lives and meet them in person. Um, yeah, he's the catalyst, you know, yeah. for for all of it. That's true. Um, but it really is a story about these three women and how they've kind of gotten to a place in their lives in which all of the choices they've made up until now are being called into question. Mm. Yeah, that's very true. And yeah, that's the, that's the heart of the story. Um, and it's also a story that has kind of a, a book within the book, <laughs> you could say, like uh, Beck, the, the that's oldest true. sister, that's true. Yeah, she's working on her own novel in this novel. Um, and I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your writing process because let's see I pulled out a passage that talks a bit about Beck's process 
Um, it says, every day mm -hmm. since she'd been here, Beck had worked her plan. She wrote in the morning starting at 5 a.m., getting words on the page quickly, uncritically. The important thing was to just throw the story down, to not let self-doubt paralyze her anymore. She would edit later. So I'm curious, is that at all similar to your process, or how does your writing routine compare to Beck's? <laughs> I, I envy Beck <laughs> that ability to get up early oh, yeah. and write, for one thing, which I do not do. <laughs> And to write uncritically, of course, we should say that that Beck's history is not so much of a person who wrote uncritically, but she's in a situation in the story in which she really needs to get this done. Mm -hmm. So she's she's writing kind of under pressure. Uh, I have sometimes been in that situation with a deadline looming, for example, but for the most part, I am a kind of slow to rise, have you know, some coffee, look at the previous day's words on the page. Mm -hmm. And uh, my process is really to sort of that my that's my warm up. I'm rereading, re I'm tinkering with what I wrote the previous day. And then I feel like I'm ready to, you know, get back into moving the story forward mm -hmm. on the page. And I usually try to write, you know, on a word count basis. If uh, if I'm making steady progress, I'm probably writing 2,000 words a day. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally understand and that's, that. That's kind of it, you yeah. know, nuts and bolts. Um, needing that warm-up, I think, is helpful. A lot of writers sit down and just, you know, they, they start writing. And sometimes I'm like, how do you do that? <laughs> I need to get my brain to the right place. So I understand <laughs> that. At least reading over what you've written before is yeah. a good way to sort of mentally reset, I think. Um, and... Right. One one of the questions that Beck is also grappling with while she's writing her novel is how dark to go with the subject matter. Um, at one point, she thinks mm -hmm. there's there's a quote here: "Serious novelists wrote about serious subjects, especially if they are married to serious editors whose auth whose authors sometimes got nominated for major awards." Um, and I know this book is tonally maybe a little lighter than some of the other pieces that you've written, um, and it's it's got some very weighty issues in it. But the novel mixes sort of darker and lighter subject matter and treating serious subjects with some humor um, and not not necessarily being grim in tone. Um, it sounds like that was, yeah. from what you've said, maybe a conscious decision with this book. And did you ever feel pressure to, you know, write a certain type of story or write at a certain kind of literary tone? I It is a, it was a deliberate choice for sure. Um, having come out of, 20, you know, 2019 to early 2020, when I was launching... A Good Neighborhood, which, as we discussed a few minutes ago, is a much darker, much more serious story. Um, I felt like I just needed that lightness personally. Mm -hmm. And I felt like it was probable that the readers would too, even though I hoped that by the time the book was out, that we'd be on the other side of the pandemic, which, you know, depending on who you asked, we never even had one, but mm -hmm. <laughs> other people were still right in the thick of it. Yeah. Um, so yes, a deliberate choice to, to make it light, but also um, to, I don't, I don't think I'm ever going to be, you know, sort of a straight on commercial writer. Mm -hmm. So even when I'm writing with humor and um, levity, I'm still, I'm still interested in serious matters. And so that, that's the, just the deliberate balance in this book. The, the lucky thing for me in my career so far is that I have had the support of, you know, editors and, and my publisher who so far have been willing to just go with me where I have 
wanted to go with my books. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a rarity in, in the publishing world these days. It's a lot easier for an author and for a publisher, frankly, to you know, create one kind of product that they come to be known mm -hmm. for. And I think that's a, a terrific career model if that happens to fit you as a person. <laughs> but if it doesn't, um, which, it, which apparently it does not fit me. Um, yeah, I've been, I've been grateful to be able to sort of follow my, my own path that way. I don't think that that's, you know, a perpetual thing. I probably will follow my, my own path right into no one ever buying my books if I went too far <laughs> in that direction. Who knows? There, there's always <laughs> going to um, be someone who loves so it. So far, so good. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's wonderful that you're able to be flexible <laughs> oh, and, right. you know, write what, what fits the story and write what fits where you are in your life at that time. Um, and I think having mm -hmm. a little bit of levity yeah, it, kind of makes this book feel more real in a way. Like it, the people feel so real, the situations, even though they're they're dramatic sometimes, they feel real. Um, and, you know, life has both drama and comedy every day. So I think that combination sure really does. paid off here. It sure does. Um, well, thanks. Yeah. And so one more thing I have to ask you, Little Women, the Louisa May Alcott book, yeah. is one of my all-time favorites. <laughs> so it, it stood out to me that it's referenced Yay. a few times here. Um, and of course, it bears some similarities to this book as well, being a story about sisters. So was, was Little Women an inspiration to you in writing this? And are there any other books or authors that inspired you? Little Women is a book that I first read. I can't even remember how young I was. My mother had a copy that she'd had when she was young and you know she had kept it and I read it so it was just in the house and I read it mm -hmm. when I was young and I of course saw myself in Joe March even before I ever took seriously the idea that I might write as a you know professional and so she and the, the book itself they've been inspiring me like my entire writing career but this is really the first book in which those influences really sort of bubbled to the surface. And I did not actually intend them to be as as obvious as they became. But when my editor and I were working through the different drafts, she cued into it. And she said, let's tease this out even further. And I thought, that makes complete sense. Like it was a subliminal mm -hmm. thing, you know, initially. And then we made it more obvious. Um, to, to, you know, deliberately bring in those themes. And then that quote that comes in sort of almost at the end was actually my editor's idea, you know, to take that piece right out of Little Women. Okay. Yeah, I, I love those references. And I mean, I think almost all of us who have been writers, or at least female writers, you know, at some point we, we thought we were Joe March. So <laughs> I could relate to that. Right? <laughs> um. <laughs> Yeah, that and um, Laura Ingalls Wilder. I thought for a long yes. time, I said, I think I'm Laura Ingalls Wilder reincarnated. Yeah. You know, I grew up in the Midwest. I, I, was, a, I was a kind of a tomboy. Oh, the same person. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, we all have those literary heroes. Um, well, Therese, mm -hmm. I, I want to thank you so much for being here and for, you know, working through some tech issues that we had and everything and just writing this beautiful book. I loved it. And um we hope to have you back on the podcast Thank for you, the next Sarah. one. Yeah, of course. Yeah, the next one. I better get back to yes. work. <laughs> <laughs> Keep writing. I'm waiting. <laughs> no pressure, but I'm ready. <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. Uh <laughs> if you like what we're doing and would like to help us defray the cost of this podcast, 
please consider becoming one of our patrons through the Patreon website. For as little as $5 a month, say a coffee or a happy hour drink, you can help us out, and in return, we have a library of exclusive episodes, over 120, that you can access through the Patreon website. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Charlotte Weir's podcast and join up. You can cancel any time, by the way, and we thank you in advance for whatever you decide to contribute. All right, we're in Act 2, and uh, we're going to do uh, – Act 2 is going to be about uh, creativity today. We're gonna, it's going to be about writing. We've got a couple of uh, – blog bloggers here and uh who've contributed uh to uh our community blog and we also uh, have charlotte's two minute tips which is what we're going to start with uh right now hi i'm paul reale co-founder of charlotte lit with a two minute tip for charlotte readers podcast writers are storytellers but what is a story or maybe more to the point What makes a story something people want to read? We have an innate sense of what makes a satisfying story, but we can't all define it. That innate sense comes from this fact. We've been telling stories a certain way for thousands of years. So here we go. A story is a journey, either symbolic or literal, undertaken by a protagonist. Novel, memoir, fairy tale, fable, parable, film... These are all stories, and they all follow that mold. Your protagonist, the primary character about whom the story is told, will move from point A to point B and be changed by the experience. Plot, on the other hand, is what happens. Story is the experience of the protagonist as she navigates the plot, that is, as she takes her journey. The reader follows along, experiencing what the protagonist experiences learning what she learns. Now, how does that basic frame become a structure that helps us tell a story? It's essentially five components. Someone wants something, but there are obstacles which the protagonist overcomes and is changed. Now, just slightly expanded, someone, the protagonist, wants something very badly for which there are stakes for not getting it, But there are obstacles, both internal and external, which the protagonist overcomes and is changed, learns, grows from the experience. There's much more that can be said about story structure, but this is the essential nature of nearly all stories. Now, here's your action step. If you're a skeptical type, put it to the test with a movie, novel, or short story and prove to yourself that that pattern is there. Then, apply this simple but reader-expected story arc to stories you're writing, especially those you're struggling with but don't know why. Find more tips like this at charlottelit.org slash tips. Okay, it makes it sound easy, right? I know. It's <laughs> <That's> a great <laughs> summation of kind of the fundamentals of story. Yeah, you did that really well. Um, it tied it up really nicely, too. Just kind of condensed mm-hmm. it into one pretty package, I feel. Yeah, we're gonna and we're gonna be talking more uh, about uh, storytelling and writing stories when we get to Sarah's blog post later in this episode. But um, yeah, the, the compactness of it is is great. Uh, of course, you're gonna spin that out into a novel, which is gonna be 300 pages or more. But uh, it is a pretty basic concept if you think about it. You know, whenever you're watching something, it's the character wants something, and there are obstacles in the way. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, and uh, 
more than one obstacle in the way usually. Um, yeah. And they've got to overcome that. And if they do, they can they can change and there's an arc to it. So so good stuff. So now you got the got the magic formula, yeah. right? Just, just <laughs> yeah. I really like how he differentiated between plot and story too. I think that was yeah. a great way of putting that. Yeah, story being the experience and plot being what happens mm-hmm. and and the experience is really sort of tied too, I think, to the characters is how they're feeling and dealing with the what happens part right. of yeah, the deal, yeah, right? Exactly. Uh, because people have said on the show before, and I've seen it said externally too, is uh, from the show is that uh, you know plot is what happens to the characters. You know, it's there to serve the characters. It's there to serve the reader to put those to those characters in those spots that. Uh, you know, if you don't care about the character, you don't care if they get eaten by the line. Right. right? Yeah. You know, but uh, <laughs> if, if you care about them, then it becomes more traumatic when when they're faced off that way. So, all right, well, good stuff. Um, we've got a couple of uh, interesting blog posts here. And just to remind listeners, if you're a writer um, and you want to contribute to the blog, there's a way to do that on the website and uh, if we accept it we'll publish it put it in our newsletter we'll talk about it uh, talk about you on the yeah. podcast and uh, so the first one is Joel Shulkin how about uh, let's see um, Sarah you want to take uh, this and just introduce Joel for us yeah sure so uh, Joel Shulkin MD is the author of adverse effects and toxic effects um, which are the first two novels in the memory thieves series and he has penned award-winning short stories and poetry he's a pediatrician and a US Air Force veteran with a master's in, master's in public health and he lives in Florida with his wife and two daughters um, so we're excited to hear his blog post about writing what you know yeah and we've talked about this before but it's always interesting to get different uh, people's perspective on this age-old classic rule that uh, writers are constantly breaking uh, mm-hmm. for good reason. So, uh, but there's some there's some underpinnings to it that do make sense as well, which he talks about. So let's listen in, and then we'll talk about it. Write what you know. We've all heard the advice at every stage in our writing career: write what you know. But what does that mean exactly? Should you only write memoirs? If your primary interest is collecting stamps. Should all your books be about fatalities? It helps to deconstruct this writing tip and better understand what it's really telling us as authors to do. What do you know? At its core, the advice to write what you know is suggesting that if you're searching where to start, you should use experiences and knowledge you already have. If you set out to write a book about a nuclear physicist dealing with a problem involving a nuclear power plant, you better already know a fair bit about the topic, or you're going to be spending most of your time researching nuclear science before you even start to write the story. Why? Because readers expect your story, even if science fiction or fantasy, to have some connection to reality, which means you need to know what you're talking about. If your protagonist tries to repair a nuclear reactor with a Phillips head screwdriver, you can bet a reader will call you out. So, if you're a lawyer, writing a legal thriller or drama might be a good first book. If you're a wine enthusiast, one of your characters might also be a wine enthusiast. Because of your experiences, you'll be able to pull personal anecdotes and experiences into the story, and you won't have to dig up quite as many facts and details. You may even be able to use a problem you encountered in your line of work, or your hobby that evolves into a plotline or your job may attract an intriguing collection of characters. 
By writing about things you know, your story will feel more familiar as you write. But does it fit? That idea you have for a cozy mystery or a fast food restaurant manager, because you once held that job, solves crimes in his free time won't work if you can't find a way to make it plausible. Unless that restaurant is rife with crime, there's not a good reason for the manager to get involved. But a plumber who finds evidence of criminal mischief in the pipes and overhears clandestine conversations? Now that's intriguing. Write some of what you know. It's important not to throw in every bit of information you know either, unless it's important to the story. If you're a mechanic, readers don't need or want to know about every aspect of how a carburetor works unless that broken carburetor leads to finding the villain. Knowledge should be sprinkled sparingly and effectively, or you risk slowing down the story and boring the reader. Write the story you want to read. My profession is developmental behavioral pediatrics. I work in a clinic seeing kids with autism and other learning and developmental disorders. I coordinate their education and therapy plans and counsel parents on what to expect. None of that makes for a gripping thriller, and having a murder take place in the clinic would be senseless. But in my practice, I sometimes deal with psychiatric disorders and treatment, and I must understand how the brain works, including what affects our memory. So writing a book about a psychiatrist prescribing an experimental memory drug with unintended adverse effects wasn't such a stretch. Even though I'm a doctor, I'm not a memory expert. That meant I had to do research. I read peer-reviewed articles and textbooks. I consulted neurologist friends. I learned what I wanted to know more about so that I could write the story I wanted to read. So if you have some cool background that would make for a great story, use it. Just make sure it fits and don't use too much. And if you don't, that's okay. That's what research is for. Now, if you'll excuse me, I have some research to do on plumbing. <laughs> okay, that's good. So, uh, so thought thoughts on this? Uh, so it's just a different take on on what we've heard before, but uh, kind of interesting. That was good. I love the yeah. plumbing thing. Was funny. <laughs> yeah. um, I love that though. I feel like that's a good point. And I was just a comment too. I feel like we've had a lot of doctors and lawyers on this show. You know, it's kind of interesting how all that's of you guys true, like yeah. decided. <laughs> like, let's write a book. We now. all think we can write it. We all think we can write a book. Well, right? I think it's because I mean, honestly, it's it's sort of interesting because I'm sure you can speak to this too, Linus, as a you know recovering lawyer as you like to say right. i mean you've probably encountered so many different people that you can that do inspire your characters and that kind of thing so it, it is kind of an interesting thing and for joel you know like working even though he says like medicine you can't really have a murder take place in a in his practice but he probably knows so much about like the human mind <laughs> that that really does make such a huge impact on storytelling and I think um, I, I really like that post a lot, just kind of talking about you don't really, I think when you, you hear uh, write what you know, you do kind of think, well, I can't just write a memoir every time I write something, but it's mm -hmm. just, it's more so just about taking your experiences and kind of turning it into something that like, you know, does turn into the story. 
Yeah, and I like how he pointed out kind of the flip side of that too, of um, write what you know, but just because you know something doesn't mean you should write about yeah. it. <laughs> or yeah. doesn't mean don't, that... Don't, don't, don't dump on people with yeah, everything you know. Yeah. Right? yeah, just because it's interesting to you or you happen to be an expert in a certain area doesn't mean that it's something that necessarily fits into the story that you're writing now. And I think that for all writers, that can be a pitfall, especially with research, because you start researching something and you find all this information and now you know all this cool stuff, but like how much of it actually helps with the story and how much of it is just look at this cool stuff that I found. Let me tell you about it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it's good to kind of pick and choose, I think. And that's what an editor's for, right? Mm-hmm. That's where the editor comes in and says, okay, you, you need to take away all this stuff right. that makes your uh, novel sound like an encyclopedia, right? Yeah. yeah. So don't, you know, we're not here to show people how smart you are and what you've learned through your research. We're here to keep the pace moving. But one of the things uh, I think that people can do, and Joel mentions it, when they're, when they have a certain background and a certain, you know, whether it's a presence in a profession or something they've done, like you said, the the plumber, if you know how things work, um, you can put that into the mind of certain characters, right? And it, it, it actually as he said, brings plausibility to those characters because you want your characters to feel real. And that's one way to help them feel real is to provide them with some some real-world experience. And some of that you get from your life experiences or the friends you know that you've watched behave in a certain way for years and a certain, uh, you know, job they have or what they what their opinions are. So, yeah, it's, it's great. Uh, but as he said, um, you have to... Uh, you have to write a story that uh, is interesting. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's not memoir. <laughs> it's not an encyclopedia. It's, uh, but, but it's it's just one of those you know tools in the toolbox that I think uh, people can use to enrich their stories. Yeah, and also the, the idea he pointed out of like you can you can do research too. You don't have to be limited to just writing what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, like I think a great example is Wally Lamb, who we talked about earlier right. in Hannah's recommendations. You know, and the female characters he writes. Obviously, he has not lived that experience, yeah. but he's able to write really believable three-dimensional characters. So I think it's good to not be afraid to step outside of your own experience and your own you know bounds um, of your life, but when you can bring in that personal experience and things that you have um, pre-existing knowledge about, it does lend that extra kind of authenticity to it. Well, Janet said that the Sky Club um, was a female protagonist and Terry Roberts, whose male had written and she turned to me at one point and says, how in the world can he get in the head of this woman? I'm sure she's based <laughs> on her experience living with me for so long, you know, because I've never been able to get in the head yeah. <laughs> in her head to figure out what's going on <laughs> before it's too late, you know? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but I, that does take a certain, certain skill set. It takes perception yeah. right? and, mm-hmm. and attention and understanding how people feel and act and behave. And so it's, it's very interesting. So, yeah. So, you know, when people get out there and they criticize this rule and say, no, 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 just, you know, you shouldn't follow that rule, write what you know. It's really a very narrow view of that rule because write what you know is going to be a very broad concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to know a lot before we write a novel. Right. And it's, you're not just going to write it about, you know, your one vignette working at your job. It's, you you have to spin it out to a whole book. So you got to have more than just well, one person's life experience. To you also look at someone like Stephen King, right? Like his books are so wild. 
um and mm-hmm. just they they have a, such a large range too right so it's like some of these really crazy horror stories that are that could happen in your daily life other times they're not so much like that and there's the supernatural your stuff like life. yeah <laughs> but you never know <laughs> they feel super real some of them and like some of them aren't like crazy like the outsider or like you know stuff like that they're just more things that you would see that are just horrifying in your actual life or like if you believe in the devil and stuff like that i mean you know anyway i could go on on that but i'm just saying like that's not Mm -hmm. probably something that stephen king knows right he doesn't know the devil (laughs) (laughs) have you talked to stephen king about that i talked to him yesterday um yeah he confirmed sunday dinner (laughs) If you are an author who would like to be featured on the show, check out our submission process on the contact page of charlottereaderspodcast.com. Please understand that given the number of submissions we receive, we can't respond to every submission or feature everyone who submits, but with the Beyond 300 format, we are featuring more authors in many different ways. You might be interviewed or provide us some audio content for us to play, or participate in an author or marketing talk, or get a shout out for your publication. One way to be sure to get a mention on the show is to submit a 750-word or less blog post to our community blog on a writing or marketing topic. If it's accepted, we may have you on to discuss the content. Just go to charlottereaderspodcast.com and look for the community blog for details. I should mention, excuse me, that, uh, you know, listeners, you can find uh, that post on the community blog at charlottereaderspodcast.com and check that out uh, and we're going to have another one right now and Hannah if you don't yeah. mind can you introduce Lee Yeah I'm I'm actually excited to introduce Lee Zacharias she's kind of a well-known person in the North Carolina literary community and um, she's super talented and she wrote a post for us called Mountain Climbing and Alligator Wrestling um, and it is about perseverance which authors do apparently <laughs> <laughs> Right yeah, and uh, more about her uh, on, in the blog post uh, on our website. But uh, let's just, uh, we'll move right to what she has to say because I think it's a pretty powerful listen in here. Mountain climbing and alligator wrestling. There's a saying among photographers, nobody cares how many mountains you climbed or alligators you wrestled to get the picture. All that matters is the picture. Only novices believe that if they just had this lens and that camera, they could produce award-winning shots. Literary work, too, has to stand on its own merits. But if the questions writers field at panels and presentations are any indication, readers and beginning writers are endlessly fascinated with process. We all want a magic formula. Write by hand, black wing pencil, rapidograph pen, moleskin notebook. Sketch pad, go straight to the computer, get up at 4 a.m., straight back chair, yoga ball, lie on the floor, use a standing desk. Outline, don't. Write 250 words a day, no matter what. Coffee, lots of coffee. And voila, you too can produce a published book. Some of these methods work for some writers, but there is no one-size-fits-all when it comes to process, nor should a writer feel guilt about what works or doesn't work for them. Even for those who adhere to superstitious rituals, there is plenty of mountain climbing and alligator wrestling that doesn't show in the finished product. Nor does the beautiful handwritten first draft, part of which may be on scraps of envelopes now lost. All of it may have been written at a keyboard. 
There is nothing inherently more holy about the word that began its life in cursive than the one that started out in 12-point times Roman. Some writers practice every day, and that's a good thing. An ongoing practice is a useful discipline. But there are also many fine writers who require long silences between works, who need to let the reservoir refill before they find more ink. And then there are the writers who don't require silences, but have them imposed. Interruptions, other obligations, illnesses, emergencies, yet manage again and again to return and complete their projects. My point is that although we spend an inordinate amount of time on it, the process doesn't matter as long as you make it work for you. I haven't written by hand since my mother found the beginning of a silly preteen novel in a steno book intended for class notes stuffed beneath my mattress and forbade me to write. At college, safely away from her snooping, I used a typewriter. The move to a computer keyboard was a natural one for me, though I'm old enough to print nearly everything I write and scribble all over it before I return to the computer. I am not an early riser. I don't drink coffee. I get interrupted a lot. When I hear some writers speak of three or even five drafts, I'm astonished. Most of my books have required at least 20. 30 is not unheard of. I write toward the answer to a question I haven't yet framed, which is to say I'm a pantser, one who discovers as she goes along rather than planning out a plot. And though I knew from the get-go that there would be a ghost in my third novel, Across the Great Lake, it wasn't until the 22nd draft that I understood who the ghost was or what it wanted, which changed everything, though that everything involved a single word. Despite my lengthy and haphazard process, every one of my books has eventually seen publication, nor have I published any of them myself. Some books need interruption. When that's the case, you turn to something else, another writing project, another medium such as painting, music, photography, or something completely unrelated, swimming, gardening, training for a marathon. There's no expiration date on return. And when it's done, when the book, essay, poem, or play finds its audience, you may find yourself taking questions. Because you're a writer, not a photographer, you can talk about the mountains you scaled and beasts you battled, knowing that it wasn't really the height of the hills or the fierceness of the foes or even how you fought them, but the fact that you did. In the end, it's not fountain pen versus keyboard, sketch pad versus ream of cheap copy bond, Mac versus PC. It's not the camera, not the lens, but the material that wouldn't let you go and your perseverance. You, you and only you. So, <clears throat> sir and uh, Hannah, I don't know about you, but, um, you know, I'm, every time I'm listening to these now, I'm getting... Uh, fired up, you know, <laughs> mm -hmm. and being inspired, right, to go out and do something, right? You listen to, Joel, you listen to what uh, uh, Lee just had to say, and uh, there's a lot of a lot of practical information there, but sort of this, uh, I guess it's all writers are doing, you know, we're supportive of what people are doing because it ain't easy, okay. folks, and, uh, you know, what she's talking about is, is real. 
Yeah, I mean, there there is so much good stuff in there, and I'm kind of laughing listening to it because we like to ask a lot of writers questions about process. Right. <laughs> and I'm always curious to hear, like, okay, so when do you write? Do you write every day? Do you outline? <laughs> do you use a you know computer? Do you write by hand? All these sorts of things. And I think it's fascinating to hear about that stuff with other writers, and um, it's a good way to pick up tips. But I think that you also have to not fall into the trap of looking at process as this sort of magical thing where it's like, oh, if I just do it this way, if I can just, you know, write X number of words per day, or if I try writing in a notebook or whatever it is that that will like somehow make you the writer that you need to be or help you get your work done. At the end of the day, it's like she said about perseverance and you just have to put in the time, you know, even if that means writing like 20 to 30 drafts. Um, And it's also, you know, it's not, monolithic like everybody's process looks different and that's okay and sometimes you hear people say rules like you have to write every day or that sort Mm -hmm. of thing and for some people that that is what works best for them um but that's not true for everyone and so i think it's good to be able to be honest with yourself about what works for you yeah and i think it's kind of a cool thing that she was able to offer a different vision of what a writer could look like like someone that doesn't drink coffee like all day long (laughs) sit at the computer you know just or writing by hand with like a quill or something like that you know what I mean it's just like (laughs) she was very real about that this is kind of I've always the transition from a typewriter to a computer was easy for me like I I love to type things out I don't write by hand I don't drink coffee I don't wake up early um things like that because these are all things that you kind of stereotype as like the writer wakes up at 4 a.m because they're inspired in the middle of Mm -hmm. the night and um makes a huge pot of coffee and does all you know all of these things like that and she was kind of like that's not really what I do and like I said earlier Lee's kind of like I feel like she's a very prolific writer um who's written so many amazing things um just I've I've kind of heard about her work and for years and so you think about somebody like that it's 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 kind of a neat thing to think like oh well you know she she did this like I don't have to be this person that like lives by this specific process and shells out books that are really great you know you you kind of do just have to do what works best for you and that's how you you tell the story that's inside of you versus somebody else yeah we're gonna talk about a little bit about Sarah's process and, and act four here today with a blog post that she wrote, but I think it's interesting that, you know, she says that it doesn't really matter, you know, what the process is. Uh, she gets interrupted a lot um, and she has a lot mm-hmm. of drafts. And yet, you know, at the end of the day, that's probably what that particular uh, novel needed. You know, it needed a process by which it wasn't all orderly because it probably came together. That thought that came to her on the 15th or 20th draft really sort of brought it all into focus, you know, um, for her. And as she said, she needs interruption, which is really, a, we're hearkening back to, uh, to to our procrastination episode last, <laughs> <laughs> earlier earlier this month, where we talked about the fact that, you know, can procrastination be good or bad for you? Well, you need interruption. You need to step away. You need to go, as she said, do these things like swim, garden, train for, I'm not about train for marathon, but <laughs> You know, do do things that uh, you enjoy do that give you physical uh, exercise outlets. Uh, maybe it's just reading a book or listening to a book in a genre that you're not, you know, familiar with that uh, kind of takes you to another place. And then by the time you come back, you know, the subconscious is a crazy thing. It just uh, sometimes you never know what it's gonna what it's gonna put out there. Yeah, that's so true. And I think she's also just getting that idea of patience. Like sometimes you need that time between drafts or between writing sessions. And um, 
or you need to write, you know, lots and lots of drafts and just being patient with whatever your process is and not trying to kind of unlock it in one moment. Um, that's sort of, I, I think, one of the the angles or facets of persistence is being patient with yourself and the time and the, the work that it takes to actually write something and see it through to fruition. Yeah, we are, you know, kind of... Uh fall into that camp of people that are endlessly fascinated with process because uh, we do want a shortcut, right? Everybody yeah. wants to find out <laughs> what the shortcut is to finishing that novel because it's it's not easy. But I don't know. I, I like it also not just because of trying to find out the secret to writing, but just because uh, learning that there's so many different ways to do it means that the way you do it is not wrong, mm-hmm. right? We have a newsletter called Beyond 300, and we'd love to have you sign up. This is where we share what's coming on the podcast, provide helpful links, and keep you updated on the podcast and the hosts. You can sign up at charlottereaderspodcast.com or the websites of the hosts, leandiswade.com, sararcherwrites.com, or spellboundpublicrelations.com. And by the way, we won't spam you because that takes way too much time. Hey, listeners, welcome back. We're in Act 3, and... um... We've got a uh, feature here, a uh, featured author. His name is Bobby Nash, and uh, uh, we got a little interview with him. I had a great time interviewing Bobby. I met him um, on a panel for the uh, for Continual, the kind that never ends. It's a genre uh, video-based uh, where authors get together who write in different genres, and they talk about the craft and business of writing, and they have all kinds of panels, so you can check that out on YouTube. But uh, met him there, and then I thought um, – when I saw that he had a one-hour read, I don't know if y'all ever heard of these things, but uh, it's a one-hour read. It was up on uh, Amazon for 99 cents, and I thought, that looks pretty cool. Um, and it was The Lost Adventures of Captain Hawkland, Smuggler's Run. I thought, well, heck, I, want, I know the guy. I'm going to download that and see what a one-hour read is. Anyway, Bobby, is he's an award-winning author who writes novels, comic books, short stories, screenplays, and more. And gosh, he's a member of all these different organizations, including the Association of Media Tie-In Writers, and I don't know what that is, but it sounds pretty cool, and International Thriller Writers, and on occasion he appears in movies and TVs, but he usually says he's standing behind his favorite actor, um, and he says he sometimes puts pen to paper and doodles, but very interesting guy, um, got a lot going on, but this thing he does that he's doing now, this one-hour read, um, uh, is interesting from a marketing standpoint, but also from just sort of a writer flexing their uh, muscles, if they've got a novel, you know, it takes forever to write a novel, right? But uh, it doesn't take as long to write 10,000 words, which is about what a one-hour read is. And so um, what they've done is they've taken sort of these characters that were in these longer books and they've written these shorter short stories that have a, you know, beginning, middle, and an end. And this one was The Lost Adventures of Captain Hawk and Smuggler's Run. It's an adventure set in 1937 in the Pacific Ocean. The protagonist is... Uh, uh, he's he's flying a plane, and there's an island of pirates and thieves, and it's just one of these quick hitting. It's almost like one of these episodes you can watch on TV. It's done in an hour, you know. <laughs> uh, and so I thought, well, that's interesting because you could, uh, you know, take a break from your novel series, for example, and write a story about one of your characters and put it up just to, you know, so your readers have something to listen, uh, read uh, in the meantime while you're working on that next novel. So I thought, I'm going to go talk to Bobby find out how he does this, uh, talk a little bit about the lost adventures of Captain Hawkland. And uh, it was a lot of fun, and we're going to drop that interview in now. 
Hey, Bobby Nash, welcome to uh, Charlotte Roos Podcast. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Good to be here. Yeah, so so good to have you. And uh, we met when we were doing a panel together uh, for the con that never yes, ends, I guess. Yeah. The con Continual. Continual, yeah, yeah. Yeah, T tell our listeners about that in case they're not familiar with it. Oh, Continual is a fun little, uh, a fun thing. Uh, some, you know, I, I know some friends of mine put this together uh, primarily during the pandemic when, you know, conventions kind of just stopped. And it's it's one of those things that I, it's grabbed so much attention that they've continued to do it, even though that, you know, conventions are back. And basically it's like a, it's, it's like doing panels at a convention, only in a virtual setting. <clears throat> and they're a lot of fun. They've had some great topics. Um, I think I, I was ours, ours was a mystery one, I believe. Yeah, we, we had about four or five yeah, mystery and, writers talking. And uh, Gail Martin uh, is really instrumental in that. And she was our moderator, I believe, mm -hmm. and uh, got us going there. But, uh, yeah, it's nice. And it's just on YouTube. People can watch it there and uh, and get it. So um, And you've participated in a number of those yeah. panels. So And, and it's, great. it's great, too. I, the, the virtual ver version of these is so good because the, the beauty of these is you can get people from around the world talking on the same podcast or around the country or whatever to where it, which is harder to do it in a live in-person convention setting. And so I've had some wonderful discussions in those things with people in other countries. And it's interesting to see how we all look at the same topic differently. Yeah. And we're going to be talking today uh, about your, uh, one of your books, you've got many books, uh, the, the Lost Adventures of Captain Hoffman, mm -hmm. Smuggler's Run. Uh, which uh, you did some good advertising online because I stumbled across it that way. And I said, hey, I'm going to get this and see what this is all about. So we're going to talk about that. Mm -hmm. But uh, before we do that, a little bit about your writing history, because you are, I mean, you're a man of many <laughs> writing forms and genres. And let's just talk a bit about Bobby Nash. Uh, how long have you been writing, Bobby? And uh, tell us how you went from uh, novels to comics and all over the place. Well, actually, I started with comics. It was comics first. Mm -hmm. Um, my, my grand goal dream as a, as a, as a kid was I wanted to draw comic books. I didn't think anything about writing them. I just wanted to draw them. Um, and then I realized, Oh wait, you got to have a story to have something to draw. And it just turns out I'm just not that I, I can draw, but I'm not proficient enough to be a professional comic book artist. I just, you know, I, I'm not there, but I started writing stories to have things to draw and then the weird thing where I realized, hey, there might be something to this is when other people started coming and say, hey, can you write something for us? And uh, a friend of mine gave me some good advice because I was still trying to do both. And a good friend of mine gave me some advice that if you focus on one, you'll probably get better <laughs> at one. Um, he says, right now you're kind of you know, in the middle. And, you know, it's one of those things that's hard to hear. But I guess he caught me on the right day because it kind of stuck with me. And uh, so I decided to focus on the writing. And within a few years, I had sold my first uh, first strip, uh, so which was pretty cool. Um, so I started out writing comics. My first, I had stuff that came out in like the 89, 90s. It was small indie stuff or, <clears throat> excuse me, stuff we did ourselves. Um, when my first professional sale happened in 2000, I sold... Um, I was hired to uh, take over scripting duties on a book called Demon Slayer, which the writer, the scripter who was there was leaving. And the artist owned the character. It was the artist's character. 
And so we did that for like four years. The artist and I would plot together and then he would go off and come up with the story and then I would just put the script down for that. And that eventually led to me writing some more for him, writing some for the other characters for the publisher. And uh, somewhere in all of that, I had been working on a novel and I managed to sell the novel in 2004. Uh, that was my first novel, published novel called Evil Ways, uh, which came out in 2005. And it's been pretty steady busy since 2005. Before that, it was a little here, a little there. Um, but yeah, so I, so I started with comics, went to novels, then started doing short stories, and now kind of just bounce between all of them. Is there anyone that you like to spend more time in? Um, not really. I mean, because they, they work different muscles, creative muscles. Um, because like when you're doing a novel or a short story or something like that, it's all you, you're, you're painting the picture, you're setting the scene, you're describing everything. So you're, a, how you write that is a lot more geared toward the reader, you know, not just the chair was brown, you know, you, you get a little more into describing it in more, you know, prose, purple prose or whatever you want to call it with a comic. Most of what I write, the audience never actually sees. Most of what I do is information for the artists. Um, I'm giving them all that information of the chair is brown. There's five of, there's five chairs in this room. There's you know this is important information here there, and then the artist takes and adapts that. So those words are never seen. Most of what you see from me is the the dialogue or, you know, I've set stuff up with the artist, but it's, but comics is more of a collaboration because the artist is bringing things to it that sometimes makes, makes you uh, change things. Like if an artist, like if I write a scene about an angry character and the character is saying, you know, I write it so we get all this point across, but then the artist draws it. Sometimes they can draw it in a way where I go, okay, I can lose this dialogue. Because the, the 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 art covers that. I don't I don't need to say we're walking. Oh, the, I'm answering the phone. If you see him talking on the phone, that yeah, kind of it's thing. Like, it's a bit like screenwriting. Yeah, a little bit, yeah, too. exactly. And then and the ultra the opposite works too. Sometimes you can have to go in and add stuff if maybe they don't catch a certain you know a certain thing is not shown that should be. So, yeah. so, so you, you know, you've got novels, comic books, short stories, screenplays. Uh, I'm looking at the, the, the listeners can't see the background behind you. You got these great posters <laughs> behind you from all, from all your different books and, and screenplays and stuff. And so I'm, I'm wondering, is that a fun environment to work in? It just looks like it's fun. Um, well, what you see is the one clean <laughs> corner of my office. I, I, I work in a state of perpetual chaos. Um, yeah, if you okay. could see around me, my desk, I can't use my de the rest of my desk because it is stacked like yay high with, well, I can't see that either with books and, you know, I've got books here and books there and junk over here and boxes over there. And so, yeah, so it's, um, it's, a, Find your space. yeah, Find it's, your space, it's, right? uh, yeah. yes, it's controlled chaos and ever so often mm -hmm. it just gets to the point where I can't stand it anymore and I clean it up and start the process over. But, Sounds like a good storyline. Yeah, controlled yeah. chaos. Yeah. yeah, but behind <laughs> me is the one, yeah, the one clean corner because, yeah, for for like video things, I can have the background and, um, 
I found that's good, you know, good little promotion stuff to have all this. And I have multiple posters so I can swap them out if I'm talking about a certain thing. I can swap out posters or, yeah. Well, we're going to come back to, to a few writing life questions at the end, but let's focus on this idea of the one-hour read because when I when I saw this online, I thought, well, this is interesting. You can download Bobby's book. It's, uh, I'm going to get the title right. It's The Lost Adventures of Captain Hawkland's Smuggler's Run. It's got a... Uh, a, a pal wham kind of book cover, you know, kind of thing. <laughs> I'm looking at the book cover and did you draw that? I don't know. That's uh, uh, Jeffrey Hayes uh, from Plasma Fire Graphics did that. Um, okay. Very, very, very burly guy, you know, looks like there's a strong chin, yeah. you know, he's throwing a pal to the evildoer on, on the cover of the book. So, you know, there's going to be an action, you know, in this book. And so I'm thinking this looks fun. I'll, I'll, you know, one hour read, interesting. I'll download that and see what happens. So where did this idea come from? Um, have you been doing it much? And let's talk a little bit about the one hour read. Well, the I Captain Hawkland is actually actually is a character that was created by uh Charles F. Milhouse, who publishes is the publisher at Stormgate Press. So that's actually his character. And we both kind of hit upon this idea of releasing like short ebook stories. Uh what you got like the hour long read. I mean they're they're like ten thousand words. You can read it in about an hour or so. Um, we both kind of hit on the idea at the same time. I started doing it with my snow books, which uh, snow is an action adventure, uh, thriller, crime fiction stuff set in the modern day. And I actually invited Charles to to do one of those as well. And I had, I did some, and I invited several other authors to come in and tell some crime stories with these characters. And at this, un, we didn't realize it at the time, but we were both thinking along the same lines. And Charles was putting something together like that with his character, Captain Hawkland. And so he invited some writers to come in and do Captain Hawkland stories that were set. You know, he has a nice timeline of where Captain Hawkland is in the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. And so we could pick where we wanted to use him and, you know, what we wanted to do. And so um, he invited me to do one. And so I love those action adventure type stories. And so it was just a matter of coming up with a plot that worked. And so, so for any uh, writers that are listening, we're going to, you know, the writers who are also readers or the readers who just read, we're going to talk about the story in a second. But for the writers who are listening, how is this something that can sort of augment, you know, what you do if you're a novelist uh, or you're writing novellas mm-hmm. and maybe you've got a character or something that's in that novel, but you just want to kind of take a break from the novel and do something Talk about how that augments uh, maybe your other writing. Yeah, it's well, like what we did with the snow books, um, with the with the ones that I published, the snow books. Well, we called them snow shorts. All of the snow books have snow in the title, so the idea of snow shorts came to me. And yeah, because not every you know you you know this as a writer, not every story needs to be a hundred thousand words. Not every story mm-hmm. needs to be a full length right. novel, and doing these short stories allows us that little glimpse into some of the side characters that are maybe having an adventure on their own, or even the main character just has a small adventure on their own. In terms of this idea of writing a one hour mm-hmm. read, what are some of your tips for how to do that? Because mm-hmm. it is, it, you know, unlike a, a short story where there's a lot of ambiguity left at the end, which is sort of the more literary traditional short mm-hmm. story, these stories actually, you know, it's like you go watch an hour episode on, 
Netflix mm-hmm. or Amazon or something, you could get the whole story, right? Yeah, so it's kind of, you're getting a whole story. So what are some tips about how to do that? Yeah, yeah. In, the, in ten thousand words. Or yeah, less. That, that, that. Sorry, I do ramble. Yeah, the yeah. the the TV show analogy is an excellent one. You know, uh, especially back when shows that were doing episodic. You know, yeah. So coming with an end and doing something that short, you you're not. We're not, you're just telling the story. There's not a lot of, oh, let's go over here and do this little side bit. Or, you know, there's character development, but it's not like character development that's not important to that story. And so, yeah, just get to the point, tell the story. And then usually by the time you've just told the story, you've, you've reached your word count limit. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so it's, it's really just that slice of we're going to pick a day out of their life and here it is. And there's something kind of liberating in doing that because you're you're not having to go like, ooh, you know, I, yeah, I need new character development in each story. Here it could just be, we know this guy, drop him into this problem, let's see how he deals with it, and you go. And that that could be your, you know, that's your entire story. Um, so yeah, so it's fun. It's 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 fun to just tell a story you want to tell, and you know, mm-hmm. and like I said, in in our case with with both snow and. Captain Hawkland, they're very action-oriented tales. So, you know, there's a lot of, you know, fighting and gunplay or car chases or whatever. So. What I notice is, you know, now with the, the way ebooks get priced and, uh, you know, you write a whole novel. And a novel used to be 120,000 words and it got back down to 90 and even people are accepting 60 and 50,000 words now. But if you're writing a novel, you're spending more time mm-hmm. with it and you can maybe get, I don't know, you do 399, 499, 20, but, you know, you put this up, 10,000 words for 99 cents, you write four or five or six of them. They like the first one, they buy the next ones. Is there a marketing strategy to this too? Kind of. It's it's a good way to, you know, we both looked at it as kind of a good way to market because you're you're announcing multiple projects throughout the year. And at 99 cents, it's also a, a, an opportunity, should you feel the need to, make them free for a bit just to get people enticed into the world and then and then you know and they're not yes we're starting out at these 99 cent standalones but then when we get a few of them together we collect them put them in paper for people that don't want ebooks mm-hmm. so you're kind of giving them the best of both worlds you're giving them mm-hmm. you know for people that don't do ebooks if they wait till we get three or four of them then they can buy a paper book or you know that kind of thing so it is a a great way to keep the characters in the public consciousness because we can talk about like you know a 99 cent ebook say we release four or five of them a year that's four or five times to talk about it plus the collected that's the sixth time to talk about it you know and so that there it, it helps us to you know because as an indie as you know as an indie it's hard to to stay in the public mind because right. you know we don't have the marketing budgets that the larger publishers do, and we have to come up with new ways to to keep people interested in our books, and I, and, and I think it works. It um, you know, it works to varying degrees. You know, nobody's getting rich off putting out ninety nine cent short stories, so yeah. that if you know that couldn't be our main reason for doing it was to get rich. So we're looking at them as you know. It, promotion it's law you know yeah. in, here introduce you you know people are willing to try somebody they've never heard of for 99 cents exactly so. now so do you 
both of these kind of grew out of novels. So do you also continue to write the novels mm -hmm. as well related to those yeah. characters? Well, actually, I, um, they're technically novellas because they're, they're a little shorter. Okay. Um, but right. yeah, so we, yeah, we, we're, we both have novella series, Charles and I, and, and I, I do the snows as novellas primarily to keep the cost low. Cause originally my idea was to just do 90,000 word novels, like, like evil ways and all my other novels. But <clears throat> I decided that because of the, action tv format kind of it worked better as novellas plus that allows me to sell them at a lower price which mm -hmm. makes it a little easier to again to get it out in front of people so it, it also as i'm listening to you talk and the reason i was intrigued and wanted to ask you more about this was that uh, you know when you write novels uh, it takes you a while right oh yeah and it's uh, not something you can knock out and if you can do a ten thousand word story you, you're still gonna have to edit right mm -hmm. you're still gonna have to go through it but it can give you that sense of accomplishment sooner than the next time you can get a novel out. Exactly. Right? Yes. Yeah. And it's, yeah, there's a, you know, it, I, I work on multiple projects at one time anyway. So it allows me to keep working even when, you know, when, when there's not a big deadline, I can keep working on something else. Um, I do some of these things through, I do a serialized novel on Patriot, my Patreon page. So I'm writing a chapter a week of that. So while that's happening, I'm over here working on this and working on stuff for publishers. And so I can kind of bounce between them and it kind of helps keep it. Yeah. I can get, I can get a snow book done, you know, get the novella done, get it off to edits and I can work on something else while I'm waiting for it to come back from edits. So, yeah, so it, it's kind of a juggling act, you know, I wonder because I write these sort of lighthearted legal thrillers, as you know, and I'm just wondering whether it, it might be fun to take some of my uh, lawyer characters and write some uh, shorts that involve short courtroom, mm -hmm. you know, right, cause, kind of stories. You know. Right, because I, I mean, because think about it, there's, I'm sure there's things with, and not just the law, like the lawyers do things that, yeah, not <laughs> everything is a big case, you know. Right, or, right. you know, the lawyers have investigators that investigate, you know, the, yeah, you can have little short just a little short uh, adventure or short morality tale or whatever mm -hmm. that, you know, in, in your novel, it might get lost as a little side bit, you know, and here it could be, it could be the focus or, you know, something short. We can't, we can't wait any longer. The Lost Adventure Count Hawkins Smugglers Run, the, <laughs> the period is 1937. We're out in the Pacific Ocean. Um, the SS Galveston, a cargo ship commanded by Jack Cannonball Canton, an old friend of Captain Hawkins is attacked. Its crew is taken captive by Mason Greaves, the overlord of Smuggler's Run, an island of pirates and thieves. Um, I was I was kind of thinking uh, Treasure Island here for a little bit, but in the modern day, you know, <laughs> with the with with the modern equipment. Yeah. Right. Uh, but uh, so you got a little read for us. So um, what part of the book are you going to be reading from? Well, actually, I'm gonna I'm gonna start in one of the action scenes after Captain Hawkins gets involved in the story. Um, one of the things I loved about Captain Hawkland that, that, that Charles does, there's a point where he is, he has a jet pack. And so, uh, that's not in the scene I'm going to write here, but one of my things was, I definitely wanted this, you know, the first thing was him in this jet pack, you know, flying over this Island and fighting smugglers was that was where my the entire idea started when i when i got to that i thought wait a minute this we've gone futuristic here yeah. a little bit with, with jetpack but but i got to do one thing i've been wanting to do this and i feel like the perfect time is right now
attack came out of nowhere. Captain Hawkland had been so focused on the search and the plane trailing him that he missed the armed boat disguised as a fishing trawler. Normally, he would have been suspect of any ship in the vicinity, but his thoughts were jumbled, recalling past adventures while also searching for wreckage or a sign of where the missing steamer ship might have gone. The attack was def definitely a clue that he was in the right place. Smugglers run. It was also effective. As soon as he started taking fire, Hawkinson instigated evasive maneuvers. There were few living pilots still in the air with the combat experience he had, but no matter how good he was, and the captain was one of the world's best air aces, even he couldn't escape physics. By the time he made his first move, the damage to his plane was already extensive. Black smoke poured from the engine. Oil and smoke covered the canopy window, obscuring his view. As the engine choked and coughed, fighting to remain running, altitude plummeted. There, there was no way around it. The plane was going down. The only question was if Stephen Hawkland was going down with it. The island approached fast and filled the canopy. He only had seconds to act. With only seconds before splashdown, there was no time to don the portable flight pack. The best he could do was grab it after opening the canopy. A stinging blast of burnt oil assaulted his senses as greasy gray smoke enveloped him. If he timed it right, the smoke screen would hide his escape so that the men manning the ship that shot him down wouldn't see. He would have to time it just right. Five seconds, he started, quietly counting down. The cockpit erupted in sparks, igniting the fuel-soaked cockpit. Flames engulfed the seat and threatened to catch his equally soaked flight suit ablaze as well. A second before the plane hit the water, Captain Hawkland leapt from the burning cockpit, flames trailing him as, he, as his pack ignited. He hit the water hard, feet first, so that he would dive deep beneath the waves before he surfaced. The flames extinguished as soon as they submerged beneath the waves. Through the ceiling of water above him, Captain Hawkland watched his plane slam into the waves, pieces of the hull snapping loose on impact. Surprisingly, the plane remained more or less intact, with the damage he had expected a fire explosion. His plan was to use the chaos of the, the destruction as cover. Now that option was gone. The water had put out most of the fire. Holding his breath, he calculated his options. There wasn't much time to come up with an alternate plan, and he could only hold his breath for so long. The bag carrying his jetpack had a small canister of air that he could use, but that was also a limited resource. Above him, he saw the bottom of the ship as it slowed to a stop near the plane. The pirates, at least he hoped that's, what, that's all they were, had come to look for a survivor. Barring that, they were also interested in salvaging anything they could sell and turn a profit. If he hadn't been holding his breath, the captain would have barked a laugh. The enemy had just given him his ticket to freedom. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, yeah, I mean, <laughs> he's... He's in it. He's in the. He's in the drink, and he's uh, he's looking up at uh, you know what's yeah. happening around him, and uh, then he's gonna, you know, take off and try to save his friend. And, right? Yeah, so, and not my original plan. In my original plot, <laughs> he lands and sneaks onto the island. Like, hey, this is much more dramatic. Yeah, he. D yeah. You know, I I'm very much one of those. You were talking about the craft writing. I'm very much a loose plotter. I have I you know I I know plot points I want to hit, but then it's a matter of going. Okay, trusting the character and go, okay, we're here. We need to get there. How do we get there? And then let the character take me. And in the process of writing him going toward the island, it just became one of those things where it's like, wouldn't this be better if he just got shot down? 
and and it becomes a running gag later because the the plane fought that's mirroring him that pilot actually makes it to the island lands and she's giving him grief through the whole thing like wait you're such a good pilot i've never been shot down <laughs> right. you know yeah and, and and you left the story at the end i mean the nice thing is the story has a a beginning middle and an mm-hmm. end but then not necessarily because you know you know that the bad guys are going to come after mm-hmm. them and there's going to be another chapter to the story so are you thinking about that arc as you as you write this 10,000 word one hour story that you're going to have a second and a third to go with it not, you know, not always sometimes i leave it you know sometimes i like those things where you you know one of the things that always bugs me about a lot, <clears throat> a lot of popular fiction and I, and I'm as guilty of this as anybody else is we have a tendency to just kill off the villain at the end. <laughs> you know, they get their come up and said they're dead. And so I've made a conscious effort <clears throat> in recent years to not kill every villain that my, that I write, a, you know, just because you know, look, sometimes the villain is, is, is almost the best character. I'm thinking of that, that movie, uh, no, the, the TV show justified, mm-hmm. Uh, Boy oh, Crowder, was yeah. The, what a great, I mean, if you'd killed him off in the first uh, season, well, you, you wouldn't know, have had a st- And you know, he was supposed to die in the pilot. Was he really? Yes, in the book that it's based off of, he dies. And they filmed it that way in the in the, the shootout at Ava's table. When he shoots him, he kills him. He dies. And when they were watching the pilot and I guess test screening it, they're like, this guy's too cool to kill. <laughs> You can't yeah, kill so they went crowd. back and, and <laughs> added that scene at the end where he's put in the ambulance and there go, I thought yeah. you were taught to, you know, if you were going to shoot to kill him, you know, that that was, that was all after the fact because he was supposed to die in the, in the pilot. But that's the, the beauty of a great character. Could you imagine that show without Boyd? No, you couldn't. And, and, and I think, you know, I've heard people say, and I, I tend to believe that your protagonist is only, uh, as interesting as your mm-hmm. antagonist, you know, and that the two, the, the, the actual, the collision forces of the two and the stories that they both have makes the story richer. Yeah. Well, all right, Bob, we're going to have to wrap it up, but I got one question. Um, I'm going to make you think just a second. Uh, you, uh, I asked this uh, a lot on the podcast, uh, but you seem to have a lot of fun with your writing, a lot of joy out of it. Uh, you're not suffering. Uh, it doesn't appear from writer angst too much, <laughs> but uh, yeah. uh, the, the, que- the the question goes like this. It's, uh, you know, if you could tell your younger writing self something of value that uh, had you known it then, it might uh, have helped you along the way. What would it be? Oh, yeah, this is a good one. I, I actually have, I've been asked this question before. I would tell myself to focus because there was a point where I I really didn't have any focus. I did what I wanted and, allowed like after even after evil ways came out i kind of took a left turn into doing some stuff that got me off the track i had planned for myself so definitely focus the other one i would tell my younger self was writing is a business take business classes (laughs) because i didn't know that when i was when i was in you know high school and college you know they're doing it yourself was not a viable option you know you know, um, a lot of people that today don't realize that, that not too very long ago, if you self-published, that meant you just weren't good enough to be hired. And people looked down on that. It wasn't an, it wasn't a viable option like it is today. So I wish 
I had known, I could have seen the future that I would be running my own small business one day mm-hmm. and I would have been, be- I would have been better prepared. Which, and, and when you say business, that includes not just the accounting, but the marketing as well, oh, sure. right? Yeah. Cause yeah. my, as a, my writing day, you know, people ask how long do you write? And I'm like, well, I may, you know, I'm in the office eight to 10 hours a day, but that's not, I'm not writing eight to 10 hours a day. There's stuff like this, uh, interviews, mm-hmm. podcasts, writing press releases. I had to learn how to do that. You know, designing ads, um, you know, reaching out to conventions, all this stuff that just admin work. That's It's very important work and you have to do it. But when you're doing that, you're not writing. You know, mm-hmm. production work, putting the books together. I mean, that's all, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's become this, 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 bigger job than I thought it would be. You know, I always, yeah. as a kid, I thought, oh, you write your stories, you hand them to somebody and you're done. And that is, exactly. as you know, that is, that is not, not how it works at all. We're, we'll have it in the show notes, but tell them your website. Bobby. Uh, BobbyNash.com uh, is my website. Um, and I mentioned myself, my publishing imprint is Ben Books. It's Ben, B-E-N dash books.com. All right, great. All right, listeners, go. Check all that out. When you go to his webpage, you're going to be hit with a, just a lot of color and a lot of activity going on, and you're going to say, man, this guy's really busy. And, Bobby, since you are really busy, I'm going to let you get back at it. Thanks so much for spending time with us on Charlotte Ridge Podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. We, it, this was a lot of fun. Thank you. For all things Charlotte Readers Podcast, check out charlottereaderspodcast.com. You can find a list of all episodes, an alphabetical guest list with links, detailed show notes for each episode, a community blog, and more. We'd love to have you visit. All right, we have another feature author now. Hannah, you want to take this one? Um, Our next author is Ruth Little, and I know Ruth because I used to work with her on the promotion of this book, actually. Mm -hmm. Um, It's called The Book of Ruth. Ruth is amazing. You know, she's got such a wide um, array of talents. Uh, She's the owner of Longleaf Historical Resources in Longleaf Studio in Raleigh. Um, so she's got kind of like the histor- historic, uh, historic resource portion and like just uh, sharing more about where we live in North Carolina, the um, landmarks and things like that. And she's also a fine artist. Um, her works of art and architectural history include Sticks and Stones, Three Centuries of North Carolina Grave Markers and Carolina Cottage, A Personal History of the Piazza House. Um, just speaking of the Gravestone Project, she is very well... Uh, acquainted with the ghosts of North Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) She was actually on a podcast where she was talking about just like haunted things. So that's something that she kind of knows a lot about. It's a really interesting thing to talk with her about. Um, But in her book, The Book of Ruth, uh, she kind of talks about decades, so 50 years of experiences from being a preservation activist in the 1970s to a consultant, author, and artist in 2010s. Um, but also when she was younger, you know, she takes us on sort of an emotional journey through a lot of different things that she dealt with, the ghosts of patriarchy, travel anxiety, and relationships. Um, it's definitely, it's, it's a very engaging piece of work where you can kind of go with her along on this ride and, uh, reflect on her life as she was born into a Southern family with traditional Southern values and how she kind of broke outside of that. Because, you know, when you think about it, like she's a very progressive 
artist activist she's out there all the time like if you follow her on her author facebook or you know you talk with her she's always doing something so um it's a really interesting interesting book and she does a great job of kind of just highlighting different issues that she's struggled with and dealt with and how she kind of rose above that um so yeah we kind of did i'll jump into the first question with her um i I asked Ruth, most people use the term demons when describing past experiences, traumas, but you refer to your past experiences and battles fought as ghosts. So going back to that term of ghosts, um, how did you come to that term and how did your ghosts present themselves in your career as a historian? The ghosts that have haunted me throughout my life are the patriarchy, panic attacks, artist block, and the search for security with a true partner. My mother instilled her anxiety into my subconscious, giving me panic attacks. The patriarchy told me in college that my representational paintings were not good art, causing me to pivot from a career as an artist to being an art historian. Being an architectural historian, I've had a career of travel and fieldwork all over North Carolina, dragging along the anxiety ghost that whispered in my ear that I'm not capable of taking care of myself when I'm alone in a strange place. Ironically, cleaning out my mother's hoarder house, where there were many ghosts of the past, released my artist block, the urge to create beautiful paintings out of the horror of a trash dump, created my first art show, Keeping House, six large collage paintings, of each room in the hoarder house. This was in 2000, and I've been painting ever since. I've searched most of my life for a lifetime partner who could satisfy my parallel needs for security and independence. Well, okay, so um, so the book is a memoir. She's dealing with these issues and talking about how she used those experiences, Hannah, to... Uh, do what she's done since then. Yeah, and I think, you know, we talked about this earlier in this show and just, again, within several past interviews, just like the generational trauma, um, she talks a good bit about that. Like she said, and right just now, just her her mother instilled anxiety in her. So a lot of the book, too, is, is her kind of dealing with that, like how, and she mentions a hoarder house and, um, you know, going through her mother's things and things like that. And, and she, she uses all of this stuff as fuel, though, um, so I would say, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like she, she's dealt with a lot of things and she kind of views those as motivation to kind of push her career forward in both aspects. So as an artist and as a historian, and I think, um, you know, listening to her answer just now as well, back again, it's, it's kind of like being a historian and going through these things that were a big part of her family's history, um, learning from those from those experiences, just going through all of that and kind of seeing who she is and what she needs to do to move forward and um, live a healthy life. So it's really interesting. Um, the next question I asked her was, what is the relationship between your career as an author and as an artist? And does one level of creativity inspire another? Being a writer and an artist are alike because both require a lot of looking and research to understand a place or to understand the subject of a painting. After I've looked and understood down to the smallest detail, I can't wait to put my understanding into a book or a painting to pass on what I've learned to the world. For example, 
I spent two years doing field work all over the state to find the oldest graveyards so that I could understand how early settlers from England, Scotland, Germany, blacks and whites, Protestants and Catholics, rich and poor people, created monuments for their departed family members. Then I arranged the history and the photographs into a jigsaw puzzle whose pieces fit into a big picture of North Carolina. My 1998 book, Sticks and Stones, Three Centuries of North Carolina Grave Markers. After finishing the book, I painted a number of my favorite gravestones, especially the German-American headstones with symbols of the soul and eternity in Davidson County in central North Carolina. In art, a picture is worth a thousand words. I've often painted houses with porches to convey the freedom of these open-air living rooms. I often paint fish houses that used to stand on stilts in the backwaters of the Carolina coast. I'm trying to convey in one picture the haunting harmony of these architectural forms. So studying the history of buildings and painting images of them inspire each other. The more you find out about a place, the more you love it. I'm always surprised by how a painting is absorbed and understood in one glance while reading a book, thousands of words about architecture takes a long time. And I think that's kind of an interesting, going back to what we were talking about earlier with process and what exactly you write about. So Ruth writes, you know, his, historic, historic pieces and she's written for academic presses and things like that. So research is a huge part of what she does and that definitely would influence your paintings as well like if you go check out her website or you look at some of her pieces that are just on display in Raleigh um you know like she says she painted all of her favorite gravestones it's like she's mm-hmm. kind of traveled around the state and the east coast and looked at all of these historic landmarks and done the research and then painted them so it's it's kind of like but with that she's also telling a story that she can put in translate into words on a piece of paper um, and it kind of adds a different meaning to a picture is worth a thousand words, I think, when you're also a writer, um, which so I think I, I really like that she kind of made that compare that tie. You know what I mean? Um, so that was really good. And I think we're going to listen to a quick reading from her from the Book of Ruth. Yeah, before mm-hmm. we do, I just I'm curious. I'm curious, though, Hannah, you know, you're working with her on promotion side. Uh, did you have some promotions in the graveyard or something for her? <laughs> you know what? We should have done that. But, you know, it's funny. I don't, I've been thinking about that just through, like, through this conversation with her. And um, it, it's we were talking about angles to her project, right, which I, I love to kind of kick things off with that. Um, one of the angles was ghosts and graveyards. <laughs> She's like, I'm really right. interested right. in this kind of stuff, like uh, just the history of the haunted stuff that's happening with Carolina. And like I said earlier, she'd just done a podcast recently with these folks in Charlotte, um, actually, who were really interested in talking about that, like haunted graveyards and just different buildings mm-hmm. and that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we probably should have done maybe a f- graveyard yeah. funeral style <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, just a, a book reading, yeah, book reading in the graveyard with uh, d- d- dim lanterns uh, st- yeah. around you. Yeah, I can midnight see reading. Yeah. Yeah, it's like midnight. Yeah. Ruth, when you listen to this, this is an idea for you. 
That's right. That's right. No charge. Yeah. No charges. This is yeah. all just you know what fully to do. available to you for your next next read. Yeah. All right. So we got a reading here, and then we've got one more question for. But let's listen to a reading from the Book of Ruth. Sometime around 1993, I was hired by an engineering company as principal architectural historian for the Global Transport Project, a commercial truck and airport transportation hub in Lenore County, where I had spent so much time as a child with mother and her sisters. The owners of large historic farms near Kinston, who stood to lose farmland they had owned for generations, reviled the new hub. The company warned that in conducting a survey of the historic environment to fulfill federal environmental review, review requirements, I would be the first consultant to knock on the doors and that several homeowners had made threats. They suggested that I needed a bodyguard for the field work. So architectural historian Betsy Baton became my man Friday. On our first day, we stopped for gas at a country store and told the proprietor about our project. He said that his neighbor had just caught a big fish in the Neuse River and invited us for fish stew at the neighbor's party house. We nervously accepted. The real heart of Lenore County resides in the party house, a small detached kitchen out behind the main house. Eastern North Carolina men fish and hunt. They're man caves are rustic frame backyard structures with a big eat-in kitchen and sitting area where they can cook and serve their game, free of the hygiene and niceties of their wives' house kitchens. We walked into the kitchen where six middle-aged and elderly people were already sitting around a wooden table. Our host stood at the stove, stirring a big stew pot. As we sat down, the store owner asked where we were from. North Carolina is a network of tribes. His question was Carolina speak for, who are your people? He sought not our professional credentials, but whether we had an experiential emotional bond with his world. My mother's family, the Whites, grew up in LaGrange. My aunt, Aplis Lassiter, lived in Snow Hill, I replied. An elderly, white-haired man with blue eyes looked at me and teared up. Ms. Lassiter taught me fourth grade. She was the best teacher I ever had. At that, the men and the women around the table relaxed. They realized that we weren't unfeeling bureaucrats from Raleigh, but home folks they could trust. Even if we had no leverage in how the project would affect their property, they could count on us to represent them honestly Betsy and I relaxed, too, and enjoyed a memorable meal. That was the best and only fish stew we had ever eaten. It was boiled with potatoes and onions in a big pot, served with Marita white bread from the wrapper, and swilled down with Coke and Mountain Dew. Word spread after we passed the fish stew initiation, and we were graciously received at every old farm in the survey area. That's a good way to be accepted. Yeah, I was about to say, kingdom, I mean, right? like the food description there. <laughs> I'm getting hungry right now. Yeah. <laughs> we all know how much I like that. <laughs> are you always hungry? Are you always hungry? I am, you're always yeah. hungry. 
<laughs> Especially for like a stew. That sounds amazing. I would love to be initiated via fish stew. <laughs> and what do y'all, you know, I mean, this is not fiction, of course, but just, you know, adding the, that to, uh, you know, your manuscript, uh, you can almost smell mm-hmm. it coming off the page. Yeah, bit, right? I feel like one of the most effective things to me um, with whatever you're writing, it's like food descriptions, I think, really kind of pop out um, because it's just mm-hmm. something that, especially when it comes to describing smells and that kind of thing, it's something that really kind of seeps into your life experience. Um, and it's, it, what is it, like the most nostalgic thing is to smell something from your past or something like that. So I think when when an author effectively kind of describes like a mealtime or something like that, it really kind of, I, I don't know, it stands out to me. Yeah, it's also something that's like so universal, mm-hmm. but so specific at the same right. time. Like we all eat, <laughs> pretty much everyone likes to eat. Yeah. <laughs> but what people eat and how and when and why is so, right. you know, it's a great way to like actually get into the lives of the people you're talking right, about. Right, like the Southern meal too. Yeah, and I have this vision of it being a big pot, you know, they're they're cooking it and they're bringing it out and they're serving it on a, almost like a mm-hmm. picnic table and they've got the Mountain Dew and the Cokes and the bread to go with it. Uh, probably a very... Southern meal meal too, you know, like that definitely Mm -hmm. like screams in the South, like in Beaufort or something like that. You're just kind of (laughs) sitting around. We'll we'll have to ask her why it was the best and only. Yeah. Did she not go back? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Good point. But you did. You did ask her one more question. One more question. One that we like to ask a lot of um, our guests. But if you could tell your younger writing self one something of value about your writing based on what you've learned since um, writing this book as an author. If you had known it then, it might have helped you as a younger writer. What would it have been? It would be that I wish I had known how gratifying it is to write personal narratives. I've begun to write them late in life. Most of my career was third-person formal writing about history. It was impersonal and technical. I never thought my own opinion was as valuable as the experts, the ones that I footnote in my books. But now I see that my viewpoint has validity. I would tell my younger self to put myself out there, not to be afraid to express my own experience in my writing. Self, don't defer to the experts all the time. In terms of technique, I've learned from many talented editors, such as my dear friend, Catherine Beicher, that the topic sentence of each paragraph is perhaps the most important key to good writing. That sentence needs to give the reader the gist of the paragraph and move the narrative along. Here's an example from the book of Ruth. In contrast to the man at UNC who destroyed my passion for painting, at Brown, I found a professor who gave me my life's work. Lastly, I'm still learning to show, not tell in my writing. Allow the reader to experience your story through actions interesting facts and the characters emotions and thoughts rather than a description of what's happening so this is such a great question um not because we thought to ask it because a lot of people <laughs> ask this question of of writers and authors but what it brings out you know people um you know the one that jumps off the page to me is that uh, and we heard this i think in a previous episode from one of our writers i think it was neil carmichael who, who said wish she had known and here she says wish she had known how much she enjoyed it right 
like that's a really that is a cool thing you love to hear that um and especially for ruth too because like she says she she wrote a lot of you know historical documents and a lot of uh, more research nonfiction, academic style writing um but she didn't realize how much she would have loved writing personal narratives so about her own you know ideas and opinions and she didn't think that those mattered at all. So I think that's a really cool thing that through the process of writing this book, um, she probably gained a lot of confidence too, just in the fact that, you know, what I think and what I learned in my life and my career does matter. Um, and it does make an impact, especially on herself. So I think, you know, and that's sort of like writing is therapeutic, I think for, especially when it comes to memoir and that kind of thing or poetry, anything that kind of speaks directly to, your life experiences, um, you know, it's it's a really powerful thing to kind of get to know yourself a little bit better through your writing. Yeah, and I like the fact that uh, she said don't defer, you know, and don't be afraid. And that's, you know, if we're, if we're all being honest about it, uh, even the best writers who've written a, a bestseller, when they take on that next one, you know, they might have this little nagging thought, well, is this one going to be as good? Or, mm-hmm. You know, people going to like it. For uh, sure. And yet you don't, you have to not be afraid to get out there and, uh, and, and give it a shot and put it out there and not, not defer to the internal right. critic. Right. Absolutely. She's a great example too, of how you can kind of like process ideas in different ways. Like I get the feeling that she's a very, um, she uses both her right and left brains a lot, yes. it seems like, you know, with <laughs> historical and academic work and, and writing, but then also the more kind of creative memoir, personal writing, and even visual art. Um, so, you know, maybe if there's something that you've approached in one way in your life that you find interesting, you can try it in a different form or a different mm-hmm. medium and just keep sort of stretching those muscles as you go. All right. Well, we're going to be back. Uh, great stuff there. Back with uh, Act 4. Uh we're going to dive into Sarah's uh, blog entitled Streamlining the Writing Process. So uh, hang with us. Charlotte Readers Podcast is on social media, and we'd love to have you follow and engage with us. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Charlotte Readers Podcast. Check us out. All right, we're in uh, Act 4 now. Um, as I said, uh, Sarah's got a Blog. We're doing this, uh, listeners, where on each of our uh, individual author websites, or in Hannah's case, marketing website, or what would you call that website, Hannah? Kind of your, it's your spellbound <laughs> public relations. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's, <laughs> <Sure>. Yes, yes. <laughs> sure, yeah. Right now it doesn't matter, right? You've got other things on your mind. Yeah. But we've been putting uh, these uh, blog posts up once a month, and uh, we're integrating them into our newsletters, but we're also talking about some of them from time to time. And the one we're going to talk about today uh, is Sarah's streamlining the writing process. And Sarah, you're going to lead us in that uh, discussion. Um, First, why don't you give us the title and just sort of take us through this. Yeah, so um, this is a post I wrote wrote recently called The Funnel. Um, And I call it that because I I like to think of my process as sort of a funnel where I start like really open-ended and then gradually, step-by-step, I narrow into the actual like what the idea really is and getting the words on the page. Um, and I know we've talked a little bit about process earlier in this episode, like with Lee Zacharias's blog post and how the process is very individual. So this is definitely my process, <laughs> which works for me and especially me being kind of like an organized planner type of person. So maybe if you're more of a pantser as a writer, your process might look very different. Um, 
but for me, I like to kind of start open-ended and then um, narrow it down as I go and, and like to plan and outline pretty extensively before I actually start writing. Um, and it, it works for me because as each step gets kind of more focused in and, and more challenging in that sense, I it's not actually that much harder because I've done the prep work of the previous steps. And so that makes it easier to keep those ideas flowing and to keep kind of focusing in and figuring out what the story is. Um, but this all starts from the, the, the basic question, uh, so how do you write a book, right? Yeah, so. which, I mean, it seems, it might seem silly because, you know, I've written multiple books and screenplays. Landis, I know you've written multiple books, but even I, I've talked to people who have written, you know, numerous books and published numerous books, and it can still be intimidating when you're at the start of a, a new project, you know, and you're like, wait, how do I do this? <laughs> even if you've done it before, it can feel impossible. Um so yeah, I, I like to start very open and then I have this kind of six step process that I outline in the blog post of how I go from like just the the germ of an idea um, and just letting those ideas flow in the most open way possible and then sort of narrowing it in, figuring out how, how that develops into a concrete version of the story. And you've got a vision of your funnel in your blog post, mm -hmm. right? So you start at the top of the funnel uh, is uh, more brainstorming. Is that the idea? Yeah. So I start with, I think the first step I call unfocused brainstorming. So that's basically like. <laughs> that that works for most, most. Yeah. I mean, that's like no effort. <laughs> unfocused brainstorming. <laughs> the easiest, like you're not trying to force it at all. People will ask writers a lot of times, like, how do you get ideas? And, you know, you, you just get them. You can't, <laughs> you can't make yourself get an idea for a book or for anything. They just come, kind of come to you. So I like to embrace that at the start of the process and just let it be open-ended. If I get an idea that I think might be interesting or have some potential to it, I write it down. Um, but I don't necessarily try right away to be like, okay, I'm going to sit down and write this now. Like I like to kind of give myself that time and space where I'm not actively trying to work on the project initially. I'll be working on other things, but I just sort of, when those ideas pop into my head that I think might be worthwhile, I keep track with them and I jot them down. Um, and if I have an idea where it's like I had the initial concept for the story and then over time my subconscious keeps kind of returning to it and I'll get new ideas that pop into my head at random times about like oh I could add this character in or maybe this is the direction the story could go or there could be this scene or this line or whatever like I, I continue just jotting those things down when they come to me um, so the first part of the process is like you're not really trying at all so it's very easy <laughs> you can just kind of receive those ideas as they as they happen and then it's so that is part of the inspiration in fact I, I was going to tell you that Jason Mott who was on the podcast we talked about him earlier um, he said something about he used to get kind of triggered with that question you know where do you get your inspiration where do mm -hmm. your ideas come from and he's like you know it's not like I go to Costco and there's an aisle ideas. That says inspiration and I, go, <laughs> and I go I go pick one off the shelf you know and uh and that's where I get it. it it's a more of a nuanced, uh, complicated sort of waiting for the universe to tap me on the shoulder and kind of give me this idea, right? Yeah, and I think that goes to the idea that we talked about earlier about patience and like sometimes you just need time um, either between projects or between drafts of a project or when you're at the beginning of a project. Like you can't, you can make yourself sit down and do the work when you're writing something, but you only have so much control over getting ideas. And I think when you're like in that initial genesis stage for a project, you need to be open to, to inspiration and to where your subconscious is leading you. So 
um, for me, that first so, stage can take years sometimes, you know, when I. So do you make notes as you're going through this unfocused brainstorming stage? Yeah. So I, I have like a very, very sophisticated organizational system where I have like one <laughs> single. Uh, so I, love, I love this. We have a sophisticated system for something that's unfocused, right? Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit sarcastic about the sophisticated <laughs> I was like, part. Really sophisticated? <laughs> no, not yeah, at all. Yeah. It's a mess, but you know, it works for me. <laughs> So tell us the difference between unfocused brainstorming and focused brainstorming, because that's step two. Yeah, right? step two is focused brainstorming, and for that, that's when I get to a point where I'm like, okay, I'm actually going to start to try to make an effort <laughs> on this project and like sit down and and try to see if I can turn it into something. So that's where I'll take just the random ideas that I've jotted down over time that have come to me about that project and make like a dedicated word document. Um, and copy and paste those notes into that. And then I start actively trying to generate more ideas. But it's helpful because I already have the notes that I've written down over time. So I'm not just kind of like staring at a blank page. I've got something to work with. And for me, anytime that I, if I just sit down and like read through the notes that I have, I'll start coming up with more ideas and I can add to the document. So that's when I start. I'm not trying to like actually make something concrete yet. I'm not trying to write the words. I'm not trying to make an outline or anything like that, but I'm, I'm just trying to keep the brainstorming going and actually come up with ideas. Mm -hmm. And then step three, you're going to be planning, right? Yeah. So that's like, um, a little bit more focused than the brainstorming. Like that's where I'll actually say, okay, now I need to make a list of characters and make a description of each of the characters, or I need to figure out what my act structure is and figure out like the, you know, what the midpoint is going to be, what the climax is going to be. Um, and of course, through all this process, there might be like research you're doing too and, you know, reading or, or watching um, projects that are kind of similar to yours in some way, looking for inspiration. So that's where I, I kind of start to act more actively shape it into something. But it's still just like notes at this point. I don't know. I'm thinking about Hannah's and my personality. We're like, uh, are you ever going to write? Come on, you know. <laughs> yeah, eventually, you get there. You get there. <laughs> what do you think, Hannah? You got all this patience? I have you know? no patience. <laughs> Anyone will tell you that. <laughs> My husband especially, he'll be like, you. Because we hadn't even gotten, I mean, we got to go all the way down to step seven, six to start writing, right? Yeah. We're, we're in a, we got outlining and then we got the scene outline. Does this, Sarah, does this grow out of your your screenwriting? Because that has to be so precise and the work. So you're trying to get kind of a, you know, the arc down where you're going to go before you start writing? Yeah, I think a lot of it does come from screenwriting. I mean, some of it is probably just me being type A. <laughs> Some of it might just be personality too. Um, yeah. But yeah, with screenwriting, like um, it's very much outline driven and plot driven. Like screenwriters pretty much always outline. Um, I remember I was in like a, a critique group screenwriting meeting years ago in LA and um, we were talking about a script I'd written and this writer was giving me feedback and he was like, did you outline this? And I said, yes. And he was like, really? And that was like <laughs> a serious burn to give a writer. It's like, I don't think you wrote an outline. Um, yeah. So it's, yeah, outlining is something that I, I definitely learned and was hammered into me as a screenwriter. But for fiction and for, you know, writing a memoir or something like that, I think a lot of writers don't necessarily do that. And, you know, as we talked about, that's totally up to the individual and you have to find the process that works for you. But I I get more done when I plan more, for sure. Well, I remember uh, I was talking to Joel Burkett. He, I interviewed him. He writes uh, these sort of legal thrillers. He was a lawyer, environmental lawyer, and writes the environmental law, legal thrillers. And um, But he was saying he was writing these, like, 
30,000 word outlines and they were just sucking the soul out of mm-hmm. you know Tori had to kind of give that up so that because by the time it came to write the manuscript he was kind of worn out you know with it so when you talk about outlining Sarah how how detailed are you doing with your outline I get pretty detailed with it um mm-hmm. yeah like I Typically, I'll write like a scene by scene outline where I have a breakdown of what's going to happen in each scene. And then I also, once I, I have that, I'll go back through my notes document with all of the random ideas that I've come up with. And I'll look through that and try to figure out where everything fits into the outline. So like there might be a line that I want a character to say, I have to figure out what scene is that going to go into or a piece of backstory or an idea about a character that I want to come across. And then I figure out, okay, where is that going to actually show up in the story like where would that fit organically um so i have a pretty thorough outline before i start writing but that is something i've thought about is like maybe i should try and experiment with pulling back on that a little bit and be a bit more spontaneous because i do think there's something to be said for you know letting letting that creativity still happen when you're actually writing um which obviously even if you have a detailed outline like you're still finding stuff on the page with the words themselves but a lot of people swear by just, you know, sitting down and letting the ideas flow and finding it as they go. Yeah, and, and there might be a middle ground that works. But, I mean, look, back to the earlier, what what uh, Lee Zacharias said is whatever works for mm-hmm. you. But uh, I've heard of some authors, too. And I actually think I did this in my second book. I was writing, and I was about halfway through, and I thought I had an idea for the ending. So I just wrote the last chapter. And then I went back and wrote from the middle to the end. I've heard other authors do that too. If you've got that flexibility, you've got, the, there's, there's no law that says you can't do that. Right. <laughs> and you can, you can write it in any order that you want to write it, write what you're inspired. That's really to write. cool. I had a question to you for both of you, actually, just as writers, um, when you're thinking of your characters, do you outline your characters? I mean, do you kind of take your, your lead set, your crew and you're just like, this is the stuff mm-hmm. they've experienced. This is why they're the way they are. Um, you know, this is what I want this person's name to be, that kind of thing. For me, Sarah, you want to go first? Yeah, yeah, I do usually. Um, like when I'm in that sort of planning stage is typically when I'll do that and I'll make a list of characters and for each, at least like each significant okay. character, I'll figure out like what's their name, what's their age. I ask myself questions like, um, what do they want versus what do they need? What are their motivations? What are their strengths and their weaknesses? Um, and sometimes literally like making myself write it out in complete sentences in a way that I could, as if I were writing mm-hmm. it for like a treatment to pitch to someone else, makes me sort of develop those ideas more um, concretely and more fully. But it's definitely something that changes as you write too. Like once you get into the draft and you're putting the pieces together, a lot of times they evolve as I go. Yeah, I kind of outline the characters in my head a little bit in the early stages, and sometimes I'll write uh, for a while and then discover things about the characters as I'm writing that uh, once I discover them, they might cause me to change sort of the direction I'm going or they might actually affirm, you know, where I'm headed, you know, kind of in the right direction. Um, I think uh, I I use Scrivener, um, and I did with Deadly Declarations – They've got a research column, and they've got a way you can actually take pictures and do things. So I would I would take some pictures of some actors and drop them in under different characters to kind yeah. of get, just to see what they mm-hmm. might kind of look like, you know, and uh, did some of that to play with that. So I'm thinking about uh, the physical features. Um, I'm thinking about their past. But the fun thing is, and the idea that 
when I do get around to writing the second book in the series, um, I'm learning more things about the characters, right? Because you can't learn everything about somebody uh, mm-hmm. in one sitting, right? There's going to be more nuance, more depth, depth. And so I just, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I don't make a full character profile. Some people do that, but I do try to jot some notes down about the characters so that I know kind of who they are, how old they are, a little bit about their past and what, what they're thinking about and what's driving them and what they're afraid of and what they're like. That's interesting. And I think like pick selecting character names has always sort of fascinated me. Like, cause you think of these iconic characters like Harry Potter, um, you know, or Bilbo Baggins, like these big, like, how do you think, you know, is that something else that just kind of comes to you? I mean, I'm thinking of Jaeger for you, Landis right now. Cause he's, he's like, yeah, that's a good name. <laughs> sometimes yeah. it's like a blank. Sometimes yeah. it's a blank. And sometimes you change a name because I did change a name in Deadly Declarations. But Jaeger, yeah. I kind of hit on early because I had this idea that this is a character who was born the same day as the uh, the flight pilot who broke the sound barrier. And his mother thought he was louder uh, than, the, than the test pilot when he was born. So that kind of gave me Jaeger, you know, Chuck Jaeger, Alexander. Um, and different names come in different ways. I mean, I was, uh, I kind of learned little bit from uh, Craig Johnson who taught uh, that and he named his character uh, Walt Longmire and if you think about that name Longmire he's kind of a brooding individual right he keeps a lot inside he doesn't let a lot out mm-hmm. Longmire mm-hmm. and it just kind of fits with the name so I, I chose Craig Travail as a lawyer who's on the outs and on his heels and right. is up in a retirement community so I tried to try to do that and some of the other ones I just had these because I, I was making these quirky characters, I thought, let's make them quirky uh, and came up with some nicknames for them and that kind of thing. So that was fun. But a lot of times, I don't know. I, I don't know about you, Sarah, but sometimes the name doesn't come to me right away. Mm-hmm. And I just have to think, uh, I will put a name in here for now, but I might come back and change it. Yeah, for sure. Um, sometimes the name, you get a name right up front that feels like, oh, yeah, this is this character or it's even part of how you build the character. But then there are other times when I come up with that come come up with it after the fact or even like googling lists yeah. of baby uh, names <laughs> that's <laughs> a good, good way to just look through and get inspiration <laughs> yeah <laughs> or especially like if you maybe the character comes from a certain culture or there's like something yeah, you, you know specifically that you want the name to be but you don't know the exact name yet it can help you kind of narrow it down um but it is sometimes you change the name of a character to a certain point like with this script that i'm currently working on um, based on the last round of notes, I had to change the names of several characters. And mm-hmm. once you've written a few drafts, it's very disorienting to then be like, oh, no, wait, yeah. who's this person? <laughs> like I, right. you get that name stuck in your head um, and it just kind of becomes part of them. So it's always interesting to change a name later. Yeah. And I, I was thinking when I was looking at your uh, blog post for this episode, um, I had th- I'd written a blog post back in April called How to Complete a Novel mm-hmm. um, because I got that question Um on the book tour, you know, how do you write a novel? And I really couldn't answer the question at the book signing because it's like, yeah. you can't answer that question. <laughs> it's yeah. a big question. <laughs> and, 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 you know, because there's like thousands of books written on how to write books and there's articles and there's, you go to conferences and you do all these different things to learn how to write. But one of the things I said was um, in this post uh, on my Wade Scripps blog is that, uh, you know, you got to find your through line. And I hadn't found my through line early in the writing process for Deadly Declarations. I was writing a mystery in a retirement community, but I wasn't sure really what the story should be until I met Scott Seifert and learned more about the Mecklenburg Declaration of Independence. And once I found the through line and got excited about that, 
you know, the writing really picked up. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true for you, Sarah, you know, finding what I call that through line, that thing, the kind of that thread that will tie, you know, turn a short story into a novel. Yeah. yeah. And it's so exciting when you find that too, or just anything in the writing process where you like, you have part of an idea, but you know that something's not gelling and then you get that piece and you're like, oh, this is what ties it together. Or this is what makes this make sense. And I think you have to sort of listen to those um, gut feelings that you're having as a writer. Like if you're, if you're struggling to write either a whole project or like a particular character you always feel like you have trouble writing or a particular scene you're struggling with like it's probably going to be a struggle for the reader too to get through that part so Mm -hmm. it's helpful to to listen to those feelings and take a step back sometimes and instead of just like forcing yourself through and being like okay I'm just going to write this the way that I've conceived of it currently if if you're really struggling and dreading writing it there's probably something that's going on there that you can um yeah, if, you're, if you're bored, if you're bored with it, your readers exactly, be bored yeah, yeah, right. I also said not quitting long enough to see your novel published mm-hmm. is a worthy goal. You know? Yeah, just just don't quit, stay with perseverance. it, perseverance. Uh, <laughs> then you can kind of, mm-hmm. yeah, the perseverance. Yeah, stay stay with it. So, so Sarah, you're, just to recap, your funnel it's uh, got six parts, five of which take place before you even really start. <laughs> writing. Uh, but that works for you, right? Yeah. I mean, it works for me. And it's something that I might, um, I've been thinking, like I said, about maybe trying to mix it up a little bit and be a little bit more open-ended. And um, I don't know if I'll ever be a full-on cancer and just sit down and write <laughs> a novel on a blank page. <laughs> yeah. Never say never. Maybe, maybe next time I'll try that. But um, Maybe for the one hour read, you could do a one hour, you know, like yeah. 10,000 word story. You know, yeah. Take- I mean, I've been, I've been writing some short stories lately and that has been a way to be a little bit more open about it. But even with that, mm. I outline first. <laughs> I'm, I'm too afraid well, to just write it. <laughs> it's interesting because I think there's a difference in the kind of short story you might write to enter a a contest these days where they're judging short stories in a in this one hour read mm-hmm. that I'm talking about because you know a lot of times in the short story world it's about ambiguity it's about uh, leaving the reader with something to think about something you know maybe tapping into a, one emotion mm-hmm. you know one character whereas this one hour read thing is for those fans of a particular you know, I don't know. It's a, it's an episode story. You know, yeah. it's a beginning, middle, and end kind of thing. So two two different kinds of things. So maybe maybe one of your plus one characters has to do something else and you know, ten thousand <laughs> you know read or ten hour read to go with yeah. it. Uh, um, so any any uh, parting thoughts on that, sir? For advice for somebody, uh, you know, either how how to use the funnel for, in a way that works for them. Um, I mean, like I said, you, you have to figure out what works for you individually and it's going to look different for you than for anyone else. But I do think that part of why this process works for me is that it gives me something to work off of when I sit down to write. Um, and you know, sometimes there are those days when you just, you're tired, you're not into it. You don't want to sit down and work and maybe you feel like you don't have any ideas, but if I have something to work off of, like if I have notes that I've already built up or an outline already there, then if I just make myself sit down and start reading through what I already have, that pretty much inevitably will kind of get the creative juices flowing. Um, and I can kind of put myself into that writing mood, even when the inspiration isn't necessarily striking that hard. Um, so I think it's helpful to just build up whatever it looks like for you, whatever your notes are, just build up something that you can look at when you're sitting down to start writing. And that way you can kind of get yourself into a writing session, regardless of how motivated or inspired you might feel that day. All right. Well, that's, that's good stuff. Let's do a, 
One quick message, we're going to come back with our takeaways and what's coming in the next episode. You can subscribe to Charlotte Reader's podcast wherever you'd like to get your podcasts. We're on all major podcast platforms. And the best part is, it's free. Oh, and if you like what we're doing, please leave us a review, because when you do, we travel much farther and wider in podcast land. All right, Hannah, since uh, you're not going to be with us after this episode, at least it, uh, not sitting here <laughs> doing what we're doing now, you will have you a never know. interview we'll drop into, into an Squadcast episode. Just you know? as a surprise. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe maybe you'll say to the husband here, take take baby Gwen and we're yeah. going to go talk. I wouldn't be surprised. So, uh, <laughs> knowing me, <laughs> yeah. So that that's I'm sure that's one of your takeaways. But other takeaways from yeah, this I feel like here. I say the same kind of thing every episode, but I feel like I learned a lot just about different stuff. I always love the blog posts. I think it's great to kind of hear about different folks' perspectives in terms of you know what makes writing. Um, a, such a positive experience for them and I think the person I love Lee's post about perseverance and um, just kind of offering that different vision of what a writer could look like I really appreciated that a lot especially as a person who I mean I write but not the same kind of writing as you know the two of you do or like fiction or that kind of thing I'm sort of a different style and I think for me that was kind of a cool thing just to hear like oh yeah you don't really need to because I mean I don't wake up at three o'clock in the morning with inspired ideas right like that's not me <laughs> <laughs> I I mean no <laughs> I will soon <laughs> you will you will next month oh, yeah. Yeah, I will <laughs> soon but not right now you won't catch me yeah. doing that yeah. uh, <laughs> so I really liked that a lot I thought that was good and um I loved hearing you know talk like being able to kind of pick your brain a little bit more, Sarah, and know more about what your process looks like. And I think that's really kind of a cool thing that you're able to um, flesh out your process in that way. That's something that I wish I could do because I'm super type B. Like you said, you're type A. I'm, I'm, I'm a pantser 1,000%. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, I can do this in five. I mean, I don't pre- <laughs> just kind of like <laughs> roll with it. <laughs> <laughs> with everything yeah, i'm jealous of we that. need to be in the I middle and form like a <laughs> that, dual <why>. person <laughs> yeah <But> I, <laughs> that, that's why hannah's in charge of social media for us because you know we she can do it quickly and we're like uh well do we does it should be this? i'll, I'll yeah. belabor it too much well now yeah. i think yeah. it, it's yeah, a exactly. good match though like when we were doing um our interview with benjamin gilmer yesterday it was it was a good flow because Sarah is a lot more yeah you know she can kind of smoothly transition into things and I'm just popping out being like well I think this what do you think you have good (laughs) projections and enthusiastic yes exactly so it works out I think it's really good so but yeah it was it was a great episode as usual I think it was really good I'm excited to um listen while I'm awake at 3 (laughs) a.m shortly yeah yeah. Sarah (laughs) yeah um yeah I mean I as always I feel like I learned a lot too there there's a lot of good kind of food for thought I think about individuality in the writing process and finding your own way whether it's like writing what you know and and figuring out like what are your areas of expertise or things that you can speak about in a way that's interesting or valuable and bring that to the page um and also just embracing your own process which a lot of times i think involves like some real introspection and understanding your personality and how you view things and just what works for you and what doesn't and being okay with saying like yeah that works for other people but it's not for me um 
And so, yeah, I, I think that it's it's a good thing to kind of embrace who you are as a writer. And we've talked some about how writing can be therapeutic. And I think it can be therapeutic in the sense of getting ideas out on the page that maybe are sitting in your head, but it also just forces you to really understand yourself at a different level, um, both in looking like back over your life experiences and just understanding, you know, who you are and how you work and how you view the world. And sometimes that's hard to do that kind of like self-therapy, <laughs> but I think it's good for you. And I think it's necessary to be the strongest writer you can be. Um, so I think that that was an interesting takeaway for me in talking today. Yeah, and I, I liked uh, the fact that we got a lot of community activities that we're able to help share uh, with what's going on uh, in the community, uh, opportunities for uh, writers to go participate in the 100 years of uh, the Charlotte Writers Club and hear Therese Fowler and also uh, Andrew Hartley speak. And um, we've got the events coming up in October of Charlotte Lit. And uh, the writing process, uh, it's always fun for me to talk about writing process because I always – you know, I'll, I'll hear some ideas. It's like anything else. You, you know, I don't, I don't go shopping much. But when I do, you stop lying. You're gonna, you might, you might look at, yeah, you might look at a couple of things on the shelf, and you, but you're only gonna pull off one that interests you, right? Mm -hmm. So the same thing is true with the uh, writing processes. I'm gonna hear what people have to say, and I might grab one, you know, and, and try it out. So that's fun. And then the reading recommendations, uh, we had a lot of them today. I'm, I'm really happy to know, Sarah, that uh, uh, Gunner enjoys the, uh, you know, the. The sea cap, the British sea captains. Yeah, and I'm going to share here. your so recommendations I'll, with him too. He'll share those, it. and uh, and then also the fact that y'all are now tied into Libro.fm, we can make more recommendations uh, through the advanced uh, audio copies they provide to us to listen to. And uh, you, uh, yeah, just just a lot of fun. Had a great time. And Hannah, we're gonna <laughs> we're gonna miss you, Hannah. Um, <laughs> so. So please, please uh, pick up uh, Speakpipe and at least uh, call in with some stream of consciousness. You got I will. Up to five minutes. I think you know, I will. I'll, I'll yeah. have plenty yeah. of time. Um, yeah. Doing. Yeah, yeah. Tell tell us tell us how it's going and tell us you know what you're not reading. <laughs> I know, that right? Like to read it's and... <laughs> funny to like plan ahead too, where you're like, I think I can do this. Like I'm making a reading list for my maternity leave, and it's like <laughs> we'll see how it pans out. <laughs> well, that that pants are personality will exactly. Come into play. Do, do you read? Do you? Do, do you read on an electric device? I mean, uh, like I mean, a Kindle? Uh, not electric. No, <laughs> I'm a like Kindle a total. I love Kindle hard or... copies of books. I don't know if it, it's like a smell thing almost okay. to me too. So mm -hmm. one of the things that I'll tell you is Julia Jordan's wife. She when they were up in the middle of the night with Simon, the 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 Kindle or I, I can't yeah, read on my phone. It's too small for me. But they, they have a Kindle app for your phone too. But you get a little Kindle. Maybe your husband will get you a little gift here. You know, coming into this. But in the middle of the night while you're Holding them, you can read yeah. right there. Or I guess you can plug in your ear earbuds. Yeah, and listen that that's way true. Too. I'm gonna have to figure something out because I've got like a giant stack. I actually meant to tell you I bought a gentleman in Moscow because you recommended that a few weeks ago oh, yeah. on an episode. So I was yeah. like, that. I feel like it's time. <laughs> so I got that. Uh, but I have a huge <laughs> yeah. stack of books. I'm like, I need to. I'm, I'm gonna try my best. <laughs> It's just I hard know, to hold that big book and hold but it. But the audio books, I think, will be great. Yeah, I so. think that's really good because I have a feeling I'll be yeah. got a lot of yeah. things happening with my hands <laughs> coming up. So, <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, uh, Sarah, you want to lead us into 
Uh, let us know what's coming next on the podcast, which will be an episode here in October. Yeah, sure. So um, in our next episode, as always, we're going to be recommending books. Um, we'll have a great tip from Charlotte Litt and, of course, more authors and writing craft discussions. And uh, next time we're going to have two nonfiction authors. Um, we have Caitlin Jane, author of Passports and Pacifiers, Traveling the World One Tantrum at a Time, which is a wonderful title. <laughs> um, and Hannah's <laughs> going to be able to sneak that interview in just before she is on leave with her own world of pacifiers yeah. so i'm looking forward to hearing that um we're also going to interview becky robinson who's the founder and ceo of weaving influence which is a full service marketing agency um, specializing in digital and integrated marketing services and pr for authors business leaders coaches trainers speakers and thought leaders and her book is called reach create the biggest possible audience for your message book or cause um which again that's a, a you know a title that gives a strong hint about the topic but i think there's going to be a lot of really good takeaways from that for writers and marketers and probably that you can apply to all sorts of parts of life um we're also going to feature author leslie hooten um she shared a community blog post called my characters my friends where she writes about the importance of getting to know your characters well so we'll be hearing from her about that and we're going to dive into another blog post by Hannah about tips for how to work with a publicist, which I'm sure <laughs> Hannah has some some great thoughts for that <laughs> we as writers can all use. So um, she's providing us with some great content. Mm -hmm. She takes her leave. And of course, we're going to miss her, but we will begrudgingly <laughs> share her with her newborn <laughs> <Yeah>. child. <laughs> Might need her slightly yeah. more than us. <laughs> um, but as we said, we're going to, yeah, <laughs> we're going to be encouraging her to pop in when and where she can. And, you know, if we have any other author guests that come up or any other blog posts we're going to share, anything like that, um, you'll find about it in our What's Coming tab. You can always check that out on the website, charlottereaderspodcast.com. And um, we got some great listener feedback this time through social media that we shared. So as always, if you have book recommendations that you want to share or want to, you know, pop in with a little pitch for your own book, you can share that through our SpeakPipe page on the website. Um, so we're looking forward to contributing more of that as well. All right, Hannah, we're going to give you the last word. Okay. <laughs> I think I've already complained <laughs> enough about how uncomfortable I am and how <laughs> I got to figure all this stuff out. I'm sure everyone's just like, we get it. <laughs> you're very pregnant. Hannah's been a trooper yeah. with our, we have like pretty you're, long. You're going to be a great, so. be a great oh, mother. Thank you. you know, thank you. Yeah. I'm excited about it. I'll, I will be excited to return though too. I think it'll be a good, it'll be a good, um, stretch of months for different reasons in life <laughs> yeah but 